Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash G-O-M. You know how to get to Castle Black? Build your parents. Open your eyes. I'm going to eat them. Do you hear me? I'm going to eat your dead mama, and I'm going to eat your dead papa. Go tell the crows at Castle Black. Met vengeful Dornishmen and Molestown whores, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, vanquisher of vile and villainous vermin. And I'm Lady Rachel of House Fox, the controller of chaos. And this is episode 75. On this episode of our series Rewatch, we are covering Game of Thrones, season 4, episode 3, Breaker of Chains. And in case you're not already aware, this series rewatch is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen up through season seven. So if not, there's still time to catch one of Baelish's bolts to the face so you don't have to hear these spoilers. Warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. What'd you think about this episode, Lady Rachel? I thought it was pretty good. How about you? It's definitely a really good one. A lot of crazy stuff happens in it, too. Yeah, definitely. I noticed there were a lot of pairings this episode. Pairings of characters. Oh, yeah? Is that one of your numbers? Um, It's not one of my numbers, but they kind of... Actually, all but one. All but one are pairings. Nice. Yeah. Let's jump right into it. What's your number five? My number five is Littlefinger and Sansa. Nice. Yeah. So I love the opening of this episode because the first, the very first thing we see is Joffrey's purple face again. Oh, snap. And I totally forgot that. So I was a little like, oh, my word. (laughs) That's quite a sight to see right as I sit down. Classic. Yeah. I forgot about that, too. (laughs) Yeah. Um. But I love when Dantos pulls Sansa away and they start running down to the boat and the bells start ringing and, you know, she puts her hood up because she has that amazing red hair. Yeah. And she, Dantos hops in the boat and she kind of hesitates and she looks back one last time at King's Landing and she pauses and she, then she like scurries into the boat. <laughs> oh, man. Dantos yeah. gets a raw deal here, huh? He totally does. I I thought the cinematography was really pretty and kind of creepy as they rode out to that ship in the fog. Yeah, I have beautiful Misty Harbor in my in my notes. I thought it looked awesome. <laughs> awesome. And I love that, you know, they get to the side of the ship and Sansa kind of hesitates the, to climb the ladder and Dantos says to her, you're stronger than you think. 
And I thought that was a nice little sentiment, not just because she can, you know, obviously climb the ladder, but it just kind of climbing the ladder. Very symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, she's climbing the ladder because, I mean, you fast forward to season seven, she's kind of arrived. And yeah, definitely. Baelish is the one that does say chaos is a ladder. She knocks the ladder out from under him. (laughs) Yes, she certainly does. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, we we see Peter kind of talking to Sansa and and then you hear Dantos kind of below and he goes, you know, you know, voices carry on the water. You don't want the queen to hear you. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. And (laughs) I, I thought it was kind of odd, too, that Baelish kind of allows Sansa to watch Dantos die. Yeah, I thought that was uh, interesting, too. She's, like, st- stuck there looking over at the the edge at him. Yeah, I didn't think that was really necessary. But it ha- I guess it just happened really quickly, and maybe Littlefinger didn't notice that. But I, I love their, their dialogue with each other. Um, you know, Peter kind of telling Sansa, like, she's obviously a suspect, and she's yeah. like, I didn't murder anybody. And it's his doing, too. Like, he made her a suspect. Exactly. He's the reason that she fled and looked really suspicious and the reason that she had the necklace on in the first place. So he, like, he's immediately manipulating her by forcing her to have to leave so she'll end up in his arms, you know, type thing. Yes, absolutely. Super twisted. And I, I loved his line, I don't trust drunk fools. Yeah, he's a drunk and a fool. <laughs> <laughs> And then he had another great line. He's he had a couple great lines in this in this scene. Um, He's always got a good line, right? <laughs> yeah, money buys silence for a time. A bolt to the heart buys it forever. Yeah, money buys a man's silence for a time. A bolt in the heart buys it forever. Thug <laughs> <laughs> life. And then, you know, she he says to her, "You're safe now. I promise you that." And I'm mm. like, dude, you're taking her to marry the Boltons. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's such a lie. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brutal. Although that isn't arranged quite yet, is it? She's got to go to the veil first and everything. So maybe like, oh, that's maybe true. he meant it at this point in time. But then maybe. again, you know, he doesn't know what he's like. He doesn't understand what love is. is. is quite the chess player. So I Agreed. think he's always thinking five or six moves ahead. So you're saying it could be in the works already. I think it might be a thought in his mind, but not in in action yet. Gotcha. So yeah, that was my, you know, kind of quick number five. I just liked their dialogue, their interaction. And I think this is where Sansa really starts being educated by Littlefinger more than he thinks she is listening to him. She's gotcha. picking up a lot more in this dialogue than he gives her credit for and obviously it comes back to bite him in the ass in season seven yeah it does big time yeah you're totally right so did you have any notes that you wanted to touch upon this scene yeah sure um poor dantos you know he didn't know that he was a liability (laughs) he just he just thought he was gonna get some gold and save the the chick who saved his life and so he, you know, it's kind of poetic too. He, she saved his life before, and now he gave his life to save her life. So that's, that's sort of like true. an interesting turnaround there. Um, 
And like I was saying, he, you know, he's just following orders, basically making this happen, thinking he's doing the right thing and he's going to get some gold for it because he probably thinks Joffrey's a scumbag like everybody does. Plus, he gets to save Sansa. So he's like, I'm really making a difference here. You know, this is great. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and little does he know that he's just one more loose end that needs to be tied up. And so this is the second time in just a couple episodes that people get tricked and instead of getting something pleasant, they get rewarded with a crossbow. Like at the um, at the Red Wedding, you, they think you're going to be getting sweet music and instead, nope, thrum, oh, the crossbow. <laughs> you know, here Dantos thinks he's getting a nice gold, gold payment. Nope, thrum, crossbow to the face and chest. Yeah. That was intense too. I mean, it went like <laughs> right in his cheek. It wasn't to the heart. It went straight through his cheek and like out the back of his head. Yeah, the it first was, one that was gnarly. It was, <laughs> it was pretty cool though. And then the way he sort of like falls back and he's just like floating there, and Sansa just hangs over the edge, looking at him for like screaming. <laughs> yeah, voices carry on the water. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. And um, even Sansa, like she doesn't understand all the factors. She's like, he just. You know, he he was saving me. You know, he saved me. And he's like, my lady, he followed all my orders. You know, every one of them. And it was all for the gold. <laughs> he did it all for the gold. You know, and she's like, huh. So pretty brutal. Uh, we also learned that um, he had the necklace made. So remember, we were thinking that maybe it was one of the necklaces that Olena had made. Yeah, that's um, right. So apparently it was Baelish that had it crafted. And it really was just a coincidence that it looked like... Um, Lady Marjorie's or Queen yeah. Marjorie at this point, <laughs> maybe Queen, kind of Queen, <laughs> yeah. halfway Queen. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how she keeps trying to become a Queen and like never like really gets it. Yeah, she actually well, yet at least. Yeah, she actually. Let me find my notes on this here. Um, when she's talking with the the Queen of Thorns, um, she talks about how she must be cursed because. Her first husband preferred the company of men and is dead. And the second husband, you know, <laughs> like to torture like animals, torture people. <laughs> so yeah. she's like, I must be cursed. And then um, she's I love Elena's re- remark back to her after Marjorie was saying how how awful it was to see him clawing at his throat. And yeah, that's brutal. You may not have enjoyed watching him die, but you enjoyed it more than you would have enjoyed being married to him, which yep. is completely a true statement. And it's just like for her, she like she may not have enjoyed killing Joffrey, which we know because when she confesses it to Jamie, she has this whole rant about how like she'd never seen the poison work before and she didn't know it was going to be that horrible and it like made her upset. So she's going through the same thing. Like it was uncomfortable and unpleasant for her, but it was better than you know. She enjoyed it more than she would have enjoyed seeing her grand her granddaughter um, wed to that maniac. I know, and just a, a lifetime of trying to control a psychopath. I yeah. just couldn't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so brutal. <laughs> oh man! Anything else you want to add about that uh, that scene, the boat scene, or anything? No, I I liked the scene. I it, it was pretty short and sweet. It's the opener, but you know, it definitely starts Littlefinger and Sansa's journey together and we all know kind of where that leads over the next few seasons. So, I thought it was an important one to add in the top 5. Definitely. Agreed. What's your top 5? All right. My number 5 is Time for Class. 
and it's oh. Tywin schooling Tommen oh, okay. over Joff's I... dead body. <laughs> this is my number two, so I'll collaborate with you. Nice. It's uh, just a great scene, and it, to sum it up really quickly, basically what I got from it is that not only is Tywin like very knowledgeable about the 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 qualities of what make a good king and the downfalls of kings and the history of kings and king's landing but he's uh, he's he's teaching Tommen a great lesson but also in doing that forcing Tommen to be subservient to him basically so they go through each of these um these things like what makes a good king? Is it holiness? Is it justice? Is it strength? And we can talk about all these um, in a minute. But yes, it's wisdom that makes a good king. And he, a wise king knows what he knows and what he doesn't know, you know, and that's true too. It, it, one of the one of the things that's really important, like we've talked about, is known unknowns, <laughs> you know, and you want to make sure you yeah. know all the unknowns so then they're known unknowns, etc. And... Um, but that's when he twists it to a wise king listens to his counselors and heeds their advice until he comes of age, you know, and that's also true. But what he's really doing here is saying, you're going to fucking listen to everything I say. You know? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to rule this <laughs> yeah. kingdom through you. <laughs> so funny. So it's like a really a brilliant way of manipulating Tom and in, into being subservient to him by starting out as such a good lesson, you know, and then so quickly devolving into a control mechanism. <laughs> and it, even when he said that, it probably went right over Tommen's head, you know? Yeah, I mean, no I idea. do think Tommen was listening in, with intent. Definitely. But, you know, I, I also love Tywin in this scene because while he's schooling Tommen, he's completely insulting Joffrey, <laughs> yeah. which... They're standing over his dead body. His mother uh, is like literally crying next to him and saying like, this is not the time or place. And mm -hmm. Tywin's just like, your brother was not a wise king. He was not a good king. If he had been, just, perhaps he'd it was still be so alive. Great. <laughs> yeah, it was just such a great scene. Totally. Great. Tywin, he is so, his presence is unnerving. Yeah. Um, when he's even, he's so commanding and so calm. It's like he's constantly stalking his prey, like just yes, you know, like I mean? a lion, yeah, yeah, or like a even like a wolf, kind of, but you know, oh, not, not like you know, no connotations was intended there. Just <laughs> made me think of like a wolf stalking his prey, but yeah, a lion too for sure. Yeah, he he's <laughs> shitting all over Joffrey. Cersei's crying. We actually see Cersei cry in this scene like she literally she's not even blinking she's <laughs> just like looking off just listening to this and i always wonder what she's thinking in that scene because her face is saying many different things in right my opinion. it's funny too because she's like this is hardly the time or the place you know like she doesn't want to have tom and be subjected to being you know having a lesson taught to him at this time but She's in a totally different mind state than Tommen, you know. Tommen was probably picked on every day of his life by Joffrey, so he doesn't seem too upset by the whole uh, death of the king, really. Yeah, we kind of get a glimpse of that when Marjorie comes to visit Tommen in his king's quarters and Sir Pounce. Oh, <laughs> I love Sir yeah. Pounce. Jumps up and exactly. Tommen said, you know, Joffrey always threatened to cut him up and put him in my stew or something like that, <laughs> yeah. so... You know that he, w 
was probably tormented, maybe not as much as other people by Joffrey, but definitely affected by his psychotic brother's behavior. Absolutely. So we get our introduction to Tommen here. Like we we got a little little you know clip of him last time where he is laughing at the the dwarves fighting and then realized he was next to Tyrion and stopped laughing. You know, so we got a little insight into his character here, but we get a little more this time. So Tywin starts asking him questions. You know, your brother's dead. Do you know what that means? I'm not trying to trick you. It means I'll become king. You know, and so yes, and what kind of king? Would, do you think you'll be? And he's like, a good king? <laughs> you know? And it's like, already like, shows uh... he's like so like wishy-washy and like, you know, like some people would be like, a good king. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like this. But he's like, eh, am I saying the right thing? Like, who should I listen to? What should I do? You know, he doesn't have his own vision and his own personality. And then that could partially be because of his age. And that he was second born, you know, so he wasn't, or third born even, so he wasn't trying to, um, to like, he wasn't in the place of being schooled every day about, you know, one day you'll be a king, you need to be thinking about these type of things. So, um, no, he was a, se- he was a second son and yeah. pretty much out of the line of succession, really until kind of Robert died because Robert was still fairly young. Joffrey came into his, kinghood early in life and i mean what's the likelihood that robert and joffrey die within a couple years of each other and so i don't even think really it was on tommen's radar i think he probably assumed that he would be a prince like oberyn the rest of his life you know be royalty but never hold the throne yeah exactly i agree so then they're going through the different you know qualities of kings and Tywin's asking him you know what what do you think is the king's single most important quality and Tommen thinks for a second and he says holiness you know <laughs> and we learn that Baylor the Blessed was holy he built this whole sept this beautiful building that they've been having all these weddings in and everything he he also named a six-year-old boy High Septon because he thought the boy could work miracles, and he ended up fasting himself to death. You know, so because food was of this world and yeah, it was sinful. Yeah, so that shows goes to show you that maybe holiness isn't the most important thing. Although it could be argued that you know certain characteristics of the faith would be uh, you know could be incorporated to make a leader good and just. Speaking of just, the next quality that Tom enlists is justice. And uh, Tywin always has an answer for everything. He's, you know, he's thought about this a lot. He's, this is, Tywin is a really smart guy. And, you know, regardless of what you say about his intents or his actions, you know. So he says, so, you know, a good, yeah, a good king must be just. But Orius the first was just, and uh, everyone applauded him for his reforms. But he wasn't just for long because he let his younger brother murder him in his sleep. You know, was that just of him to abandon the subjects and, uh, you know, be too gullible to recognize the evil around him? You know, and obviously that's not a good thing. In order to be like a good, a good king would have to be just but also be able to think like a criminal so he could see that type of thing going coming you know what i mean yeah you don't want to be too trusting with the people around you i mean it's one thing to be just but it's one thing to be like lackadaisical about it yeah definitely 
so then he mentions strength and obviously strength by itself is is no important thing like nothing it's not doesn't make for the perfect king robert was strong and he put the kingdom in total debt went to three small council meetings in 17 years and basically you know destroyed a lot of stuff and screwed up big time i thought it was funny that he he mentioned him as again as robert and not your father Mm, true that's an interesting uh, way to yeah refer to it yeah and you know i want to i want to just backtrack back to the holiness i think sure. it's kind of foreshadowing because tommen's kind of downfall is the high sparrow and Ooh, being yeah. kind of sucked into the the religion of it and not and not basically not keeping church and state separated. <laughs> that's a that's a great point too because his first inclination in here is to lean towards holiness. So that that means that that's a weakness for him to potentially, like you said, get dragged into something like that down the line. Since it's the first thing he thought of, you know, he has like a, a preponderance to go in that direction. He's more, he seems to be more religious than yeah. the rest of his family. It comes back to bite him for sure. Then they go. They get to wisdom, and and he puts it in perspective, saying, "But what is wisdom? You know, like when if when you have one complicated problem coming at you from one direction and another complicated problem coming at you from another direction, how do you make a choice? You know, do you have any expertise in either of these complications? You know." And Tom is like, "No, uh, no. <laughs> what Tom, are you even talking about?" Right. And Tom is like, "No, of course not." So you want to rely on the experts, you know, me. Come to me, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to run everything, bitch. <laughs> and it's so funny. I just love the way that he twists it all, and it turns from this like really like deep philosophical lesson to the into the major point being, I'm the boss. You know. <laughs> Definitely, and we all know that Tywin is, you know, the real boss behind it all. So, right. I think he is obviously, in a way, relieved that Joffrey is gone and he has a very impressionable Tommen to mold into you know what could be one of the more decent kings the realm has seen in a long time right and you hit the and nail I think on the that's head echoed i think that's echoed in later seasons that he might be i think cersei says it. he might be the first king in 50 years to sit there that actually deserves it oh yeah yeah i think you're right when she, when he's getting um when he's getting crowned, I think she says that. Yeah, that's true. And you're right about um, Tywin too having an, like an easier time with Tommen than Joffrey, and that's what makes Tyrion be like suspicious of Tywin and think he may be even suspect yes. in his in Joffrey's murder later in the same episode. But we'll uh, we'll get to that later. Sure. Anything else you want to add, or are we good? Um, I I do like seeing just another glimpse of. Tommen's innocence when Tywin, you know, explains that he must marry and, you know, why do you need to get married <laughs> yeah. so I can father children? You know he's how like, that do you works. know how that happens? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, but has anyone explained the details to you? <laughs> it's, it's just kind of a great scene to show how innocent Tommen really is. I mean, he's 
I think in the books he's extremely young. Yeah, they've like, aged up a lot of the younger characters in the show just to make it like less weird when they're getting freaky and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, but isn't he only like 10 or 11 in the books if, at this point? If that. <laughs> yeah, he's very very young. Yeah. So I mean, he's young in the show too. He's probably like 14 or 15. Probably I mean, something like that. He looks young that. to me. Yeah. I wonder how old. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how old the actor is, but yeah, he's pretty. He's pretty young. He's supposed to be like 13, probably 14. Okay, you know, yeah. Like and then I know we touched upon ter- upon Cersei's face, and I just thought yep. Lena Headey played her so well because she had a essentially silent role in this scene, um, and just the look on her face. I know I had said this is. There were a lot of different emotions going on. She's grieving. She kind of wants to protect Tommen. And she probably wants to slap her dad across the face. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And she's holding it all together and just not blinking with her. Her mouth is really tight and there's just tears in her eyes. And it's kind of sad in that moment. Again, really Cersei's only relatable quality is being a mom and she's grieving over her child. And while someone completely bashes him and while he totally deserves to be bashed, it's just (laughs) like she said, it's really not the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's pretty funny. It's also not the time for what happens next. And, um, Tywin talking to, uh, talking to Tommen about the birds and birds and the bees may have given Jamie some ideas as they cross paths when he's entering the sept and they're leaving at the end there. Um, mm-hmm. Is that part of your main notes, or is that like a just a side note? Like this the, is a side note for me, but we can definitely talk about it since we're on this subject. Yeah, exa- that's what I was thinking. Okay, so let's let's cover that. This was like one of the most controversial scenes of the show. Did you know that? Yeah, I I had read a little bit about it because I know in the books, well, I know in the show it comes off more of like a rape scene, but I know in the books, Cersei in enjoys it more yeah it's more clear in the books that it's consensual you know that there's a point where she stops saying no and she's like okay okay you know come on yeah let's just get it done yeah (laughs) yeah i I mean you kind of i i watched closely knowing that that was kind of a a point of contest with viewers and there is a moment yeah you do see her kiss him back and and embrace him. him and pull on him so I think it's an intense scene because it's by their dead son and she is saying no. And Jamie is saying, I don't care. I don't care. Right. But there are moments she is kissing him and she is holding him and pulling him into her. So I, I take it as awkward and she's saying no because of where they are not because she doesn't want him because she initiates kissing him right first um the other thing is that the like you know kissing him back is one thing but like the pulling on him and stuff like that it's kind of subtle you know so if you're not if you're not like looking for it like if you don't know it's consensual in the books it's probably easy to overlook if you're looking at like another area of the screen or something like that or if you're distracted by Jamie saying, I don't care. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> you know? Especially a first time viewer watching that. Yeah. Um, especially if you haven't read the books, it's like, whoa, what is going on? This is gross. Yeah. Like it's gross because it's incest. <laughs> and it's gross because 
their dead son is like right above them and his body is like moving while they're like <laughs> struggling with each other and yeah it's pretty it's, pretty rough it's very awkward yeah i could definitely see how it could people could see it as being a rape you know for sure definitely so yeah that that's pretty intense scene yeah i want to make just a couple more notes i think it's very interesting before they get it on that oh yeah Cer- yeah yeah that Cersei tells Jamie, you know, kill Tyrion. It's it's justice, and I think it's really fitting that Jamie ends up letting him go. And you know, it's kind of a middle finger to Cersei for sure when Jamie lets Tyrion go because she is begging him to kill his brother, and he's like, "You want me to kill my own brother? Like, what are you talking about?" We know he's like done with breaking oaths and stuff as to, to the most he can you know so she's basically saying become a kinslayer you know and he's like no no i don't want to do that exactly so it's rough and maybe it's kind of foreshadowing because he does let Tyrion go that maybe it's kind of a foreshadow that maybe jamie will end up killing cersei in season eight yeah or siding with Tyrion more overall in general mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i do love jamie's line you're a hateful woman why have the gods made me love a hateful woman right yeah, that was pretty Which is brutal. so true. It, it was kind of sad because he's not saying that he doesn't want to love her or that he doesn't love her. It's just like, why are you so, so why are you such a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love you, but you're a bitch. I'll kick you in the balls. Bitch. I love you. Yep. So, and she also explains her motivate her like her reasoning for thinking that it was Tyrion, you know, and it's pretty circumstantial, honestly. Very. <laughs> she, it was Tyrion. He killed him. He told me he would. A day will come when you think you are safe and happy, and your joy will turn to ashes in your mouth. That's what he said to me. But even that isn't a direct threat. Like that could be no. karma coming back to do exactly. that to her. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, it's pretty clear that Tyrion did not kill her, or did not kill him. Um, and it's like he says later, is like if I, you know, if I had planned to kill him, I wouldn't have been standing there looking <laughs> like amazed as, as it's happening, trying to figure out what's going on. You know? Yeah, he says, if I were arranging a royal assassination, <laughs> I'd plan it in such a way that I wouldn't be standing there in such a way, gawking like a fool when the king died. Yeah, 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 hilarious. It's a great Un- unless that's line. part of the plan to throw everybody off. <laughs> Make it look true. like you have no idea what's going on. Like like Olena. Olena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Idiots, help your yeah. king. <laughs> Somebody help that dear boy. Yeah, it's hilarious. So yeah, she's she's got the psychology of it like down, you know. Definitely. She really thinks like a criminal. Anything else you want to say about that, or should we jump to your number four? No, I think we can move on. All right. So my number four is Haria. Haria. <laughs> the Hound and Arya. Um, also known as Around. Around? Okay. <laughs> Around. Arya and the Hound. Oh, yeah. Okay, that works too. <laughs> if we're going to go with the weird nicknames. I like Haria. <laughs> <laughs> so... I found it very telling when the hound is talking to Arya and he says, you know, she's like, well, where will you go after you 
sell me to my aunt essentially. And he goes, you know, maybe I'll go to the East um, and go fight with the second sons. And it's a nice sentiment because he is the second son. Ah, uh, yes. And then you hear up above them, you know, seven blessings. And what are you doing kind of on my land? And Aria kind of goes into telling another what I dub faceless man story. Yeah. About the hound being her father and their house being burned down with their mother in it. Yeah, she's totally playing the game of faces. Yeah, so I I think she's just so preconditioned to being a faceless man that it comes easy for her in later seasons. Yeah, she's like totally meant to do this. (laughs) That's like her thing is always doing this type of thing, pretending to be somebody that she's not. Yeah, and right now it's pure protection, so her identity is kept safe. And also, in a way, kind of the hound's identity, even though some people do recognize the hound, it's pretty immediate that they know either they recognize him or if they don't recognize him right away, they don't know who he is. Yeah. And I liked the the old man or the dad. He goes, there's a storm coming. You'll be needing a roof tonight. And I thought that was quite a foreshadow to fast forward to season seven when the hound and Thoros go back to that hut and it's storming outside and that's why they're going into their oh. cabin to get out of the the snow and the storm. True. So I you know that was kind of sad knowing that the hound is right that they'll both be dead come winter. Yeah, and I was wondering is it is it a prediction or is it more of a self-fulfilling prophecy and he stole the guy's silver which put him at a disadvantage which like put the nail in his coffin basically, or even potentially caused his, the death of him and his daughter. Um, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to know. Um, really. I think, I think it's a prediction from his logic certainly makes sense. Yeah. I, I don't think he's thinking that them having that silver would keep them alive it might have kept them alive a little longer, but I don't think it would have kept them alive through the whole winter because it's supposed to be a really long winter. <laughs> yeah, winter. That's true. So I think, I think in his mind, it's like, even if they have the silver, I mean, maybe he's not even thinking this at this point, but even if they had, it's just silver. It's not gold. He said it's a bit of silver. It's like a tiny little bag. I mean, it might have bought them a couple extra months, mm. but I, I don't, I still don't think they would have been alive when the hound came back for them yeah. to, or to that place. Yeah, that's probably What true. do you think? Uh, maybe a bit of both, you know, like I think their odds were really slim and uh, I don't think the hound helped them, <laughs> helped no. improve their odds at all. So it, it's interesting to uh, Arya as they're leaving the scene of the crime. Basically, Arya's like, "I thought you said you weren't a thief," you know, and he's like, "I wasn't." And uh, so it's it's sad that he's been forced into a life of crime. Basically, at this point, this is the first time we see him do something that's like really fucked up without like having an order to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and I just thought the scene. I felt really bad for the dad he's praying to the seven and you can just see the look of hunger on both their faces i mean that rabbit stew is just staring them straight in the face i'm sure the smell is overwhelming yeah the hound looks so hungry (laughs) he he's like 
and we pray that the stranger doesn't kill us in our sleep. And yeah. he just like, are you going to do this for dude. all seven of the fuckers? And <laughs> Arya goes, Father. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. And they just start sucking down this rabbit stew. And the father and Sally are just like wide eyed staring at them. Yeah, the hound like dumps it everywhere. <laughs> I know, it's just spilling everywhere. And then he's like, Got any ale? <laughs> uh, what kind of man doesn't keep ale in his house? <laughs> the yeah. broke kind, dude, the broke kind. And you didn't help it. And then they kind of go into talking about the Red Wedding, they're calling it. Again, we are, I didn't realize how much violating guest right comes up before and after the red wedding yeah until this rewatch yeah i mean he's like he offered him bread and salt and he killed him under their roof and yeah he called it sacrilege yeah definitely and you know the hound just in his rage of being really hungry he goes you know guest right doesn't mean that much anymore and he goes well it means something to me like you're sitting in my house right now eating yeah. my food <laughs> the gods will have their vengeance he adds yeah yeah um Frey will Frey will burn in the seven hells for what he did and then it pans to aria right after he says that and aria has like this look on her face and i just loved that it was kind of a foreshadow that she's the one to kill nice Walder Frey. So the the phrase uh, bread and salt is kind of funny, right? Here, eat some salt. Like, <laughs> it was just eating salt, you know what I mean? I know. Who put it salt was a blatant disrespect, truly. <laughs> it was um, very literal, that scene of them actually eating bread and salt. Right, right. Um, and the the talk of guest rights sort of... Um, it's It sort of happens in reverse here with Sandor stealing this guy's silver after being his guest and essentially dooming him to death, you know? So it's not like, it's not the, the that guest right is being broken, but it's like kind of the reverse, which is sort of funny. Definitely. Um, I, I loved Arya's face as the guy is talking about needing a helping hand around the farm. And, you know, um, he says fair wages for fair work and, the hound kind of takes him up on that. Near fair market, too. Yeah, Arya seemed kind of surprised that the hound would say yes and, and stay there. So I think she figures something's kind of up his sleeve because she knows at this point that he's taking her to the veil. Right, then she knows they have a plan. So she's like, um, what? Yeah. And then... <laughs> You're the worst shit in the seven kingdoms. <laughs> There's worse shits than me. <laughs> There's worse than me. What does he say? Um, How many stars do they have to behead before you figure it out? Yeah, yeah. It's a brutal, brutal line that kind of puts things in perspective. She's like, oh shit, yeah. How many? <laughs> How many more? There aren't really many, yeah. many more to go. Not a lot. Well, as far as she's aware, it's just. Sansa. Mm-hmm. Or no, does she not know her brothers are missing at this point or presumed dead? Good question. I'm not sure if she knows that they're missing or if or not. I mean, she had to have heard something, right? At some point she's had to have asked somebody, "Well, what about the you know, the other Stark kids?" Um there's a couple parts where like when the um when the old guy says that basically invites them to spend the night and says that Sally makes a mean rabbit stew. 
Um, the hound seems uneasy in that scene, as if he already knows that nothing good's going to come of it. Yes. Which is kind of funny. And um, one of the other cool things I liked about this scene was during that intro part of the scene, you can get a, get a you get a good look at Sandor's um, armor and stuff, and his chainmail is like all fucked up and like <laughs> it looks like he's been through like a thousand battles. Oh really? Like, I didn't even notice any of that. Yeah, it looks I'll have to looks go back cool. And look at it. It's like dangling on like tatters off of his elbow and stuff. Uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah, that was that was my number one too. That scene. Fair wages for fair work. <laughs> awesome. So we are on your number four? Yes, ma'am. My number four is Oberyn and Tywin. Okay, that this is my number one, so we can... <laughs> cool. Um, before Tywin arrives, a scene opens up to Oberyn and Olivar and Ilaria and various other whores all <laughs> intertwined on a big, huge bed. <laughs> Orgy! Yeah, it's hilarious. And uh, we get some insight to Oberyn's ideas about sexuality, um, where she says, you know, he's asking all of our, like, what his deal is. And he says, everyone has this preference. And Oberyn reminds that, or replies that, then everyone is missing half the world's pleasure, which is funny because that's my attitude about food. You know, (laughs) it's like vegetarians (laughs) versus like people who eat meat. You know, it's yeah, like, why why just true. go with one or the other, you know, with sexuality or sexual attraction, you know, not so much for me. I, I have a preference, you know, sure. <laughs> which is funny. Um, but Oprah has solid logic either way, you know, um, the gods made this and it delights me. The gods made that and it delights me. When it comes to war, I fight for Dorne. When it comes to love, I don't choose sides, <laughs> which is funny. That's a great line. He uh, he has great logic when it comes to a lot of things, um, as we'll see during his discussion with Tywin as well. There's a funny line where um, Ilaria says... Girls and boys will both will all line up to fuck him until the day he dies, you know, and it's sort of foreshadowing his death in the near future. This Very much so. season, which sucks. He was such a great character, man. Really, a big a bummer to uh, to lose him at the end of the season. Yeah, he he shone brightly and then fizzled out. Yeah, big time. <laughs> in a very horrid scene. <laughs> Exploded. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh man. So that's when, um, he, oh, he actually has a good reply to that too, where he says, they will all have to line up behind you, you know, yeah, <laughs> which I is love a great, that. um, and then that's when Tywin shows up and they get a moment to themselves. And I'm thinking, damn, Oprah's got Tywin all alone, unprotected. He could just kill him right now. I love how he goes, would you like to sit? And Tywin's like, No. It's like uh, you guys have been like rolling around in those sheets for yeah. It's like uh, a while now. It's like no, I'm not sitting you. down in there. Hell no. <laughs> um, so he says to Tywin, "I'm sorry about your grandson." You know, and um, Tywin's like, "Are you?" He's like, "I don't believe that a child is responsible for the sins of his father or his grandfather," and that's sort of this uh, this philosophical like intelligence that Oberyn has that it's true like every man you know is responsible for his own actions they shouldn't be blamed for other people's actions so yeah Oberyn definitely just has an unmistakable logic to the way he views reality which um is admirable and commendable I like I like Oberyn 
I do too. He's he seems like a very interesting and well-rounded individual. Mm-hmm. So Tywin's suspicious, and he doesn't know if Oberyn's just throwing him off by throwing some good logic at him or what. So um, basically, Oberyn goes on and gets into the details of the murder. An awful way to die, you know, <laughs> which we all agree on it must be horrible. And um, Marjorie was saying how awful it was, too. And so Tywin is like, uh, and what way is that? And he basically says, yeah, I know he was poisoned. Is this an interrogation? Like, yeah, I know that, like, about poisons. I was I was trained at the Citadel and studied poison, poisons. This is how I know, you know. And uh, <laughs> some people think the king choked. <laughs> some people believe the sky is blue because we live inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant, which I thought was a fun <laughs> reference back to season one with the, the Dothraki ladies uh, talking with Daenerys. Remember that? McCumber? Didn't yeah, didn't old Nan say something about it too? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah, definitely. She had Bran was familiar with the story, I believe. Um, so he's like, "Why haven't you thrown me in a dungeon?" And then it becomes clear that Tywin wants something from him, you know, and he's he's manipulating everybody in this episode and setting things up. I was getting the king under his thumb. He's getting a council like put together small council which um will bring dorn back into the fold and he knows that he can potentially win oberon and dorn's loyalty by giving them the mountain you know which is uh pretty funny he's, he's totally willing to throw uh throw gregor under the bus to uh bring the kingdom yeah and oberon's the look on oberon's face when he says that he's trying to i think he's trying to figure out if tywin's bluffing or not because that's mm. a pretty big prize to offer up to sit on the small council and you know be be on the jury for Tyrion's murder I, I do like Tywin's sentiment when he said men at war commit all types of crimes without their s- superior's knowledge yeah and uh, that was he's a like, very interesting so, testament. Yeah, so he's, he's so you deny involvement in Elia's murder, and categorically, you know, and it's interesting that he actually does deny it, like straight up. He doesn't skirt the question or dodge it, like Bronn talking about Shay getting on the boat. Did you see her? You know, did you see the boat get, sail away? Um, he actually says, like, I deny it, you know, categorically. Do you think he? Do you think he gave the orders or not? I don't know, because because then there's like a moment of silence between the two where they're looking each other in the eye, and Tywin's the the left corner of his mouth is like twitching and like a almost like, like just a hint of a sneer, you know, like he's messing mm-hmm. with it, you know, and so it's it's really hard to tell. I'm not sure. <laughs> what do you think? Tywin doesn't strike me as someone to lie if he's asked a a straight up question. Unless he thinks that the lie will save a lot of trouble down the line and make things exactly. a lot better. Like in the case with the Red Wedding, where he's willing to skirt the proper procedures, you know, and, and do something that would be more, like, immoral, essentially, to save tens of thousands of lives from dying in the war. The greater good. Right. So I, I could see him lying if he thought that it would bring the kingdoms together and make Dorne fall in line. But that little sneer, that flicker of a smile at his mouth makes me think partially that he he knows and he arranged it i think maybe he 
I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this sentiment because I feel like maybe he gave the orders to kill his sister, but not necessarily the children. But then I go back and it's like the chi- the children, especially the son, would be the line of succession. So right. if, Tywin, if Tywin were to give the orders to snuff out that family line, he would have given the orders to kill the children too. Yeah, the children would be the more important targets. Like you could yeah. let, let the queen live, and you know, without the king who's dead, she can't make. You know, Further she she can't line. do anything. Yeah, so she becomes a relic essentially at that point. Yeah, so I just kind of go back and forth on that. Mm-hmm. On that point, I and we know that Tywin. Well, he says to Tyrion, you know, I wanted to carry you out into the sea and let the waves wash you away. He wanted to kill his own son. He didn't end up going through with it. True. That's interesting. And it could be, um, actually, yeah, this would, that would have been before the sack of King's Landing, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting. Maybe he, that, yeah, that could be a clue that he wouldn't necessarily order it. But then again, it's not his kids that, that would be on the line. Yeah, um, and then when he does say, I can arrange for this meeting, I love that that's a total foreshadow of the Mountain and Oberyn meeting in in the trial by combat. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Except for Oberyn arranges that meeting. (laughs) Yeah, he he does, I guess, in a way. You know, Tywin sets it up because Oberyn becomes a part of the, the jury, so he gets involved emotionally in this trial mm. and then placates to Tyrion and seeing it as an opportunity to take on the mountain. Yeah, it's true. Um just an interesting little historical parallel if if he the uh, if the mountain had killed the children of um Elia and Rhaegar and not Elia herself if the if the kingdom wasn't completely overthrown, it could have ended up with a situation like um Elizabeth the 1st of 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 England, um, Henry the Eighth, his second daughter from remember from the Tudors, yeah, she ends up being the end of the Tudor line because she never had kids or anything like that. So after she died, it passed on to a different house, basically. Yes, it did. That's right. Just an interesting little historical thing there. So yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Tywin is really extending an olive branch here to Dorne, giving them a potential position of power in the, in the small council and anything. Um, or so it seems, you know, it could just be another control mechanism. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's very interesting that you bring that up because Tywin sees a need to have Dorne back into the fold. He said, you know, we are not the Seven Kingdoms until Dorne returns to the fold. And I find it interesting because Tywin was unconcerned about the dragons to the east when he talked to Joffrey a few um, a few episodes ago. Right. And now he seems to be kind of worried about them. So I'm curious maybe what right. changed in Tywin's head about the dragons. Maybe he has more info that they're getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. But I found it interesting that we we discover that only the Dornish resisted the dragons. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. I had totally forgotten that somehow they were not really conquered by Aegon. Yeah, and I was I mean, maybe this is some, 
you know, brought up in the in the books or in the history books of Westeros. But I'm curious how the Dornish resisted the conquering and, and the dragons or were they just not even kind of bothered? Tar- targeted. Because, <laughs> yeah, because they were so far south. So basically, during Aegon's conquest, Rhaenys, uh, his sister and wife, flew on Meraxes to Dorne, where they found empty holdfasts and no people, because all of the Dornish people had gone to hide in the deserts and the mountains. So Rhaenys conquered hold, holdfasts, but there was it was pointless because there was no people to be ruled. So eventually, she just left. And then... And Dorne, Dorne escaped the initial conquest. Then in 4 AC, the first Dornish war began where where Aegon and his sisters tried to conquer Dorne for the second time. And this resulted in 10 AC with um, the death of Rhaenys and her dragon Meraxes at Hellholt. And there was an attempt on Aegon's life, which, which afterwards he formed the Kingsguard. And I think they just stopped trying to conquer Dorne after the the hor- horrible defeat of Meraxes and Rhaenys. I think Aegon was really upset about that and just, just said, fuck them, leave them alone for a while, basically. But then they, you know, hunt, in like 157 AC, the uh, another conquest attempt was made by King Daron I. And um, eventually in 180, 158, Sunspear submitted. But there's, they've, they've, subsequently rebelled and they've sort of been in and out of the kingdom after a series of Dornish wars and things like that. So pretty interesting and storied history. So they eventually gave up their kingship of their sovereign territory in Dorne and submitted to the seven kingdoms, but they remained the, like the, the sons of the Kings remained princes basically. So they kept their princehood for eternity. Interestingly. So imagine how things may have played out if Tywin had survived since we know he recognizes the reality of the, the Targaryen dragon threat at this point, um, the sparrows would never have been an issue because that would not have flown with Tywin being alive. No. Tommen wouldn't have been so easily manipulatable. Um, you know, the Seven Kingdoms may have been galvanized to repel Danny and her dragon spawn. Like, imagine how crazy that could have been. Oh, man, for sure. She arrives to a kingdom in ruin, basically. But I bet that if Tywin had taken, you know, control with Tommen, that the uh, the Seven Kingdoms would not have been in the same shape that they were to greet her. No, no, I agree. Dorne may have been part of it, part of the Seven Kingdoms. Like if if uh, if Oberyn took this deal and didn't die, then he would have been on the small council. He would have they they would have had a stake in what happens in King's Landing, and she wouldn't have. You know, through through Varys, gotten the Dornish army with Ilaria and the crazy girls and whatnot. That's true. That's true. That's like her main first army that joins her when she shows up to Westeros. So. Fire and blood. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Varys says. Yeah. <laughs> it comes a great out. Moment. Fire and blood. Yep, that was so cool. Um, so... Oberyn responds, and of course, like, he can't resist rubbing it in where he can, you know, taking a jab at time. And you're saying you need us. That must be very hard for you to admit. <laughs> you know? um, so that was kind of funny. Oberyn's like, or Tywin's like, Argh. but then he pulls it together. Well, we need each other. You know, you, you help me serve justice to the king's assassins, and I'll help you serve justice to Elia's. 
Yeah. And I found that really interesting. Again, I don't necessarily believe Tywin that he would give up the mountain to Oberyn, but maybe Tywin is so overly confident in the mountain that right. he isn't really worried. But Interesting you know, um, little nod to the books kind of there because uh, actually on the TV show as well, remember they send a head to Dorne, don't they? That they're claiming as the mountain's head. Is that and I think that's in the books. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's not in the show. I know that for a fact. Okay. Yeah. They basically claim that they're you know Tywin sends the mountain's head like yeah this is the you know, mountain he's dead you know after the whole poisoning Oberyn fight thing like here's his head but in reality we know that the mountain is being turned into monster man by Kyburn <laughs> so oh, yeah. he hasn't really given him up so oh yeah interesting. So it's interesting there. Um, Oberyn has a moment where he sees opportunity for justice for Elia, but he's also wary of being used as a pawn in Tywin's machinations, you know. So he looks kind of conflicted there while he's considering his options at the end of the scene. But yeah, very good scene overall. We learn a lot. There's some interesting philosophy and stuff like that getting thrown around. So good good stuff. Yeah, and again... again we talked about this a little bit last episode of like the game of words. Yeah, love it. And the game of wit. And we have two extremely smart world, I will say like worldly men. Yeah, definitely. Tywin's been around a long time. Oberyn has traveled the world. He's studied at the Citadel. Very he's, worldly. Yeah, he's spent time in lease and just spent time with the Second Sons and... Tywin, it you know, he's been around a while. He's been at King's Landing a while. He's been a part of a few different dynasties. Mm-hmm. So their different perspectives are just really, it's nice to see their dynamic. Yeah, it's really cool to see those totally different um, experiences clash with each other and the way that they... Um attack and dodge each other's sort of uh, moves in this whole chess game it's pretty cool yeah like tywin is very stoic he's very still he's very calm and collected and very kind of strict and by the book and this is the way things are like your typical kind of westerosi vibe yeah and oberon is free-flowing total and- opposite just the total polar opposite of drinking Tywin's wine life. before his fights, you know. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, having his paramour and the orgies and yeah. traveling around the world and basically kind of doing whatever he wants because mm-hmm. he doesn't really have that responsibility of you know being the prince of Dorne. Um, but he is, you know, because he's a second son, so. Right. Doran does all that princely stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great ebb and flow to that conversation and different perspectives of two very different, but in a way very similar men in the fact that they're both ex- highly educated 
Highly dangerous as well. Highly dangerous men. Exactly. Yeah. There's even that part where he's like, Tywin says to him, like, you know, I'm alone right now. I'm here unprotected. Like, why haven't you killed me? You know? And he's like, you know, I think you know me better than that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I have amazing. my wits about me. I have self-control. I could kill you today and be, what does he say? Be uh, tortured tomorrow or, you know, whatever he says. Yeah, he he understands what's going on. He's he's going to get away with it if he does something, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the trial by combat with the mountain provides the perfect avenue for him to kill the mountain and get away with it if he's successful, too. So that's awesome. So um, what's your number three? My number three is the Miranese knot starts to tangle. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so... We see Danny approaching Marine. Nice. And this is the start of the long, drawn out Marinese story with Danny that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's, some people love it. My number three is Dario versus Marine's champion, too. So Awesome. Okay. Cool. Okay. So we'll, we'll collaborate. So I loved the doors to marine oh yeah so cool they are so big like they open. it looked like uh, alice in wonderland you know where there's like yes, one big door and yes. then like a tiny little door at the bottom yes because <laughs> out pops this little teeny tiny champion yeah you think like these <laughs> gates are gonna open and <laughs> it turns out that they're really way bigger than they look yeah yeah for sure so you know he comes storming out and you know, Danny's like, are we under attack? And, you know, Jorah goes into, it's the champion of Marine, and we need to pick a, a champion. And, you know, the champion's over there peeing and just talking shit. And <laughs> <laughs> I like how each of her kind of main guys stand up, and Jorah's kind of the first one to talk. And she goes, you're... Or no, I'm sorry, Grey Worm is the first to talk. And he goes, you know, let me stand and fight for you. I won't let you down. And she goes, I can't risk you. You're the captain of the Unsullied. You're an important part of my army. And then Barristan, you know, I've killed more men in single combat than anyone. And she goes, that's why you have to remain by my side. I need a, a seasoned fighter like you in my Kingsguard. And yep. then Jorah, you know, he goes, I'll... I'll fight for you. And she goes, no, you're, you're a, a trusted advisor. Cause she doesn't know that he's betrayed her in the past, which I found kind of interesting that she said trusted advisor mm -hmm. and my dearest friend, which she's totally putting him in the friend zone again. <laughs> oh, brutal. Yeah. Um, I didn't even catch that. And then Dario steps up <laughs> and he's like, I was the last to join you know, I came from nothing. I'll return to nothing. And she's like, yep, go for it. <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah. Totally just like brushes it off. She's like, okay. Yeah, pretty convincing argument he made. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally qualified for this. My mother was a whore. I came from nothing. I'll go back to nothing. I'm the man for the job. <laughs> and she's like, yep, okay, go for it. You know, whatever. She has all these like huge reasons to keep all the other three. And she doesn't even say like, I don't know. She's like, very well then. And, you know, she asked him, like, do you want a horse? And he's like, no. And she goes, why? And he, Horses are dumber than men. 
and we get to see his booby knife. Yeah, one of his <laughs> he gets ladies. To kiss his boobies. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're they're referred to as Dario's ladies in the uh, the ladies. In the books. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know, he kisses the knife, and the champions, you know, galloping up towards him, and it's kind of intense because. The champion is running straight towards Danny. With a too. fucking lance. Yeah, right at Danny. Like if he rides right through Dario, he's riding yeah. right into Danny. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of weird the way Dario positioned himself. Mm hmm. Even with confidence, maybe I would have just like gone at a little bit of an angle just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not like screwing off our queen. Totally. And Dario or Danny betrays her feelings at this moment too, as the guy is charging towards Dario. He sort of turns and looks at her and sees how worried she is for him. And he yep. wink, he winks at her and he, he knows that he's got her. her at that point. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, he chucks the knife into the horse's eye, which is intense. And the oh. horse falls and the guy. OK, I've fallen off a horse a few times in my life. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Just a few. Oh. And it hurts. And it's a bit disorienting, especially if you don't know, like, which way you fell. Right. And he tumbles, like, four times. Yeah. So he's kind of, like, stumbling to get up and was like, what the fuck just happened? And he goes to turn and his head just gets lopped right off. Yep. I mean, it's, like, not even a contest. Yeah. And that's the even, like, the that's, that's, like, the best part about it, too, is that Dario is so fucking good that he, all he needed was his ladies. You know, he, he tossed the knife into the horse's head. The horse tumbles at the perfect distance away where the guy falls off mm -hmm. and rolls right up to Dario. And Dario doesn't even need to move. He just whoop, slashes I down know. with the Eric. It's pretty impressive. And I think yeah. Danny was very impressed because she kind of like smiles and walks away. And she's like, yeah, he's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, so, man. you know, we kind of continue and all of the Miranese people are like, oh, oh my, my God, God Becky, what just happened? They're yep. all kind of in shock. It's pretty much silence in the peanut gallery. Yeah, the masters are silent. The slaves are silent. They're just kind of like looking down at this little silver haired girl who, oh, I forgot to mention Dario Peas. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 true. <laughs> I the, loved that. The guy of, pees all over, like, Danny symbolically, and then Dario pees back at him. <laughs> yeah. So and funny. Um, I love how Danny goes into her, you know, speech. And I love that she says to the slaves, I'm not speaking to your masters. I'm speaking to you. Yeah. And that's very strong because... No one speaks to the slaves. Right. I have like nothing that. to say to them, to your masters. Yeah, I have nothing to say to your masters. I'm speaking to you. And, you know, she goes into, I went to, where's the first city that she visited? <laughs> Astapor. Astapor. With Krasny's Ast Monastus. Yeah, and all of these men that stand behind me, they're free. Then I went to Yunkai, and all of the people standing behind me are free now i'm coming to marine and basically yes. i'm gonna free you and i i loved this the symbol of her kind of chucking the barrels of the collars and having them break all over the ground yes in she's not destroying the, the buildings either like which is cool. Like she doesn't isn't bringing destruction. She's bringing. But like, what if one of those barrels hit somebody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what if True. it hit a slave? <laughs> It'd be like horrible. Heads up! Whoop! <laughs> yeah, because she shoots like 
three or or no, she shoots what like half a dozen, yeah. six, twelve of them. Yeah, something like that. And they're going fast, and I mean they're breaking. There's wood splintering everywhere. There's chains falling everywhere, and. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad nobody was hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's cool too that Slave picks up a collar and he sees it's the same thing that's around his neck and he knows that it's real because you can see the sweat stains, you know, of the previous owner and that the leather yeah. is worn and he, it makes him think and he looks back at his master, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, and it's the same, it's the same exact collar that he's wearing around yeah. his neck too. I mean, it's identical and proof you can just see his wheels are turning and. You know, obviously, this episode is named The Breaker of Chains. And mm-hmm. we know that Danny, that's one of her titles, titles, titles. <laughs> um, but I found it very interesting because at the beginning of this episode, we see Tyrion being taken away and put into chains. Ah, yes. And at the end of the episode, we really see Danny kind of entering that that moment of being the actual breaker of chains. She's in Marine. She's in the biggest city in Slaver's Bay. She's coming to conquer it and free the slaves. She has all of these collars that are broken. And that's how we end the episode. So nice little bookends about Tyrion getting into chains and Danny breaking chains. And, you know, again, that's kind of a nice little coup because they end up together and she sort of ends up breaking his chains as well because he was uh, a slave at the fighting pits before she pulled yeah she like pulls him and jorah out basically so she basically ends up breaking his chains which is cool that's right so i i just any scene with danny and it's usually pretty good and Mm -hmm. i can't remember has she been addressed yet as a title being the breaker of chains or is this where she gets that title and is now addressed as the breaker of chains i think it's from this point moving forward that's what i thought too i i couldn't remember when she goes to meet when the astapor guy comes to meet her in the tent if Masande says breaker of chains i don't think she does but i can't remember and she also doesn't say it when um when all the people of yunkai come out in the Misa episode. Oh, yeah. But she doesn't say it there either. So I don't... I think this is... From this point on, that is a title added to her titles, titles, titles. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. So she, at the end there, when she's talking and she's like, you know, I am I have only... I have nothing to say to your masters. I speak only to you. And she starts listing off all the places. I'm surprised that the masters that we're all listening to let that conversation continue. You know, Danny is like so far away. That I would think, and they know what she's done, freeing slaves in other places. I, you'd think that they would start like, just making noise so that <laughs> nobody can, yeah, so none of the slaves can hear her propaganda, you know. It's foreign propaganda. The 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 slaves, the the collars that she launched against our buildings. That's because she killed the slaves that used to be wearing those. You know, that's what they should be telling their slaves. Like, don't trust her. She's gonna kill you. I think they're kind of overwhelmed, though. I mean. Right, they don't even know what to like to do. I think they're in shock because there's a ton of unsullied right there. There's a lot of free people outside that would, you know, maybe not are trained fighters, but I think they would be willing to fight for their freedom if they had to. Mm-hmm. And they, she just like without hesitation killed supposedly the best fighter in Marine. 
like yeah. in single combat. Like it wasn't even a contest. So that guy, we got more information about him in the books. Osnak Zopal is his name. He's the champion of Marine. So hilariously, Dan Weiss, one of the uh, showrunners for Game of Thrones, had the great idea to basically have this Miranese champion be quoting the French knight taunting the English knights in um, in uh, Monty Python. So if you translate the low Valyrian of what this knight is saying, he's saying, I fart in your general direction, son of a window dresser. Oh your mother gosh. was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Go and That's boil awesome. your bottom, son of a silly person. I wave my private parts at your aunties. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough wiper. I blow my nose at you, so-called dragon queen. You and all your silly Westerosi caniggets. <laughs> we get two references to the same Monty Python joke in this one episode as as uh, Shireen is schooling Davos not to pronounce knights as caniggets when he's reading it. So it's brilliant. <laughs> Um, and yeah, in the books, it's a different. Danny has a different champion that fights him in the books, which is interesting. Oh, it's not well. Dario. Yeah, it's a it's a different guy, Strong Belwas, which oh. is cool. But yeah, he's he's like a revered fighter in Marine, so it's kind of funny that he's taken out so easily. That's very interesting. And um, oh, was, was it? It was um, Barristan who said that he's won more single combats than anybody. Yes, Barristan has won more single com- combats than That's badass. Anyone. Fucking Batman. He is Batman. <laughs> he really Batman. is. It's so cool. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. That's, yeah, I love that scene. That's, like, one of the greatest scenes of the show. Is It's crazy, too, because, you know, Danny's like, well, get a horse. And he's like, I don't, I don't need a horse, you know. She says, horses are mass- faster than men. And he says, horses are dumber than men. <laughs> and it's like yes. uh, that horse is just, he's reconning it up. You know, he's running straight at <laughs> Dario. He's not just, zigzagging. Yeah, it's it makes zigzag, an easy zigzag. target for that knife throw. Yeah. <laughs> Should have zigzagged, horse. <laughs> so we can say Rickon's as dumb as a horse, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Hey, you know what? Then I am too, because I wouldn't think to zigzag if someone was trying to shoot me with a bow and arrow. I would have just. <laughs> ran for dear life i'd be like rolling and like ducking and all kinds of crazy shit you're smarter than me duncan oh man i I don't know Uh, about that i've seen the rickon episode (laughs) well now i know if anyone's ever shooting trying to shoot me with a bow and arrow i'm zigzagging for sure exactly (laughs) so i that's kind of all of my notes for my number three yeah is your number three Mine was the same thing, and uh, we pretty much covered that awesome. pretty well. So, yeah. So, we covered my number two, which was Tywin and Tommen. So, what is your number two? My number two is There Never Lived a More Loyal Squire. Oh, Pod. <laughs> oh, Pod. <laughs> so, Pod, of course, goes to visit Tyrion in his cell. And uh, Tyrion hilariously apologizes for the stench something about the word stench is just really funny it's wrong (laughs) so uh it's like the word moist (laughs) (laughs) classic um so podrick tells him you know i i brought you some wine but they took it from me and we know that Tyrion is a wine drinker he, he drinks it's and he like knows you're a good things. lad. Yeah, a noble effort, he says, which I thought was a oh, funny Oh, that's right, a noble effort. <laughs> and um, he managed to smuggle some stuff in because he said, 
they didn't find the candles. So he brings them a quill, some parchment, some duck sausage, not dick sausage like Ramsey eats, um, almonds, and some hard cheese. And I'm like, damn, Podrick is the man, because that all sounds pretty, pretty awesome, like pretty awesome stuff to have, you know? Yeah. Um, so Tyrion asks of Shay. There's no word about her. They, he uh, he basically tells Podrick, you know, like he asks him what he asks Podrick what's being said out there, and he says you're to stand trial in a fortnight for murdering the king. And he's like, do you believe I murdered Joffrey? He's like, no, my lord, you you didn't though, right? You know, and he's got a double check, you know, which is hilarious. He's like, no, gods, no, I didn't do that, you know. And uh, Tyrion has some some great lines here that, like we said earlier, that he'd be smarter than to plan, plan it so he's gawking like a fool. The world is a better place without him, but I had nothing to do with it. I would, li- I would like to think if I were arranging a royal, wedding, a royal assassination, I'd plan it in such a way that I wouldn't be standing there gawking. Yeah, he would have been long gone. Or yeah, nowhere he would have been Sansa. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so he... He goes on to tell um, Tyrion that Oberyn is going to be part of the the jury or the judges, one of the judges. And Tyrion mentions that his father never fails to take advantage of a family tragedy, so he understands that he's trying to get Dorne into the fold. And it reminds me of a quote um, someone said: uh, "Never let a serious crisis go to waste." And uh, the people do this; they harness tragedies and whatnot to push their own goals. Um, it's pretty crazy. And some people even create crises for the same purpose to push a goal after problem reaction solution paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, he, he finds out that Sansa is gone and it tip Podrick's like, you don't think she, you know, and Ty- Tyrion is like, you can see his, his brain going through the motions. He's surprised that she's gone and that she's fled and hasn't been seen since the wedding. But he also sees through the deception and knows that even though no one had more cause to kill Joffrey than Sansa, she's not an assassin, you know? No, she's not capable of doing that. Yeah, and whoever did it wanted him to lose his head for it. Mm-hmm. Like, by and I like how him. he theorizes that may, at this point, maybe it's Tywin, because like we said earlier, Tommen is much easier than Joffrey. Right. Like I was, I mentioned that last episode too, that he was one of my suspects because it it makes sense for him to eliminate Joffrey. (laughs) Definitely. And given like what a ruthless uh, Machiavellian pragmatist he is, it would be, it's the most practical thing is to have Tommen as the king, you know, in order to accomplish his goals at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, it was interesting too, how he runs through Cersei's psychology and uh, decides that there's no way that Cersei could have been a part of it because, you know, no matter how horrible she is, like you like you say, that her one relatable character is that she's like a mother and she loves her children. So he's... So this makes it unique as yeah, far as he, King's Landing murders go. Yeah, <laughs> she's the only one I'm certain had nothing to do with this murder, which makes it unique. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Hilarious. Um, well, he's more certain than I was because <laughs> she was on my list of suspects. I mean, she, Tywin was more on my list when I first watched the royal wedding or the purple wedding. I, I never thought Cersei would do that. Right. And I think 
I think with the camera angles, watching it, you know, as many times as I had, I have in the past, the camera angles lead you to kind of believe that maybe Cersei has something to do with it. But her gut-wrenching reaction to watching her son die, you just know that she's, that's not acting. Yeah, she's really surprised. She's horrified and like looking around for help and angry and screaming and i mean she's cry she's crying cersei is crying okay like let's take that in for a minute right yeah yeah exactly Cersei doesn't cry (laughs) so she was never on my list but tywin certainly was on my list definitely possible suspects for sure especially like now that we know that um that it was elena and everything we see them kind of like walking together in the gardens and interacting occasionally it wouldn't you know, if there was one thing that they have in common, it's probably that they did. But neither one of them wanted Joffrey to be king. <laughs> there could sure. have been common ground in the assassination plot, theoretically. So Tyrion is running through his options here. He's like, "Well, you know, Sansa's no long, long, not an option for my defense. What about Varys? He could speak out on my behalf if he dared. But nope, he's already been called to be a witness for the Queen." And then Bronn is being prevented from visiting Tyrion as well, and he's under investigation, which sucks. He's like, he's like, what the fuck, Tyrion? You know, like, why you got to get me investigated, man? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, and Jamie is absent, and then Podrick, in a moment of you know true loyalty, tells Tyrion that somebody has approached him. And um, has said he would be named a knight if he tells the judges that Tyrion bought a poison called the Strangler. And um, he says there was a man, he doesn't know his face, but he, uh, he asked if he'd testify against him. And I think maybe it was Kyburn. Oh, you think? Or Pycelle? He would have known Pycelle because they've both been kings oh, for true. a long time. Oh, that's true. That's true. Kyburn yeah. was a recent um, you know, arrival. And now he's like doing Cersei's bidding, basically, as we found out. Yeah, yeah, a couple that's episodes. a good. That's a good guess. I like I like going with that theory. Thanks. Yeah, so I definitely think that it was Kyburn, which is uh, you know makes makes sense. And then in like a this is one of the most like like gut wrenching or like heart wrenching series scenes of the season or of the uh, of the whole series for me as Tyrion tells Podrick that. You know, if they that he will not have him dying on his behalf, and he had he had asked Podrick if he'd gave them a response, and he says they didn't like you know he 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 wasn't he didn't answer yet, right? He basically tells him you have to like do what you're told, because if they can't tempt you with with honey, they'll choose something less sweet, which is a funny line. Like they'll yeah. fucking kill you, man, or and, torture you until you agree. Right. So he he says that he doesn't want to um, to walk to the execute if i have to take that long walk to the executioner's block i don't want to see your head already mounted <laughs> which is amazing he's willing to condemn himself with a false testimony to prevent podrick from experiencing injustice it just shows yeah. you what a selfless character Tyrion is and like how he is like one of the good guys you know definitely so um, a powerful I, moment i I was actually thinking while you were just talking, you know, about Kyburn, and I know in the books, Varys is known to dress up oh. as like homeless people or like wear wigs and wear 
weird costumes. Maybe and, a jailkeeper, you know. It's, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it could have. I don't. This might. This might be right down Sir Patrick's alley as far as Varys betraying Tyrion. Um, but you know, I know that he was known to dress to dress up, and Varys has already been called as a witness against Tyrion. Right. Yeah, it's pretty so, interesting. Yeah, it's just definitely I mean, an option as well. He, you do see him wear some hooded cloaks in the show, but it isn't mentioned in the show as much as it is in the books of all his different costumes. Right, he's he, like a veritable wears. master of disguise in the in the books. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, um, while I agree from a show perspective that it's likely Kyburn. Mm. But I think Varys could be a suspect as well, just based off what I know in the books. Definitely. I agree. Um, so Podrick is <laughs> is heartbroken by this as well. He's like, Podrick, I'm giving you an order, you know? Like, you have to do what they tell you, basically. And then he tells him to go find his brother and get yourself out of King's Landing before it's too late. Pod, this is farewell, you know, and Podrick has like the saddest look on his He's face. He's so sad. He's farewell, like a sad little Lord. puppy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's when he starts to walk out and Tyrion stops him. Pod, there has never lived a more loyal squire. You know, which is a great line. Which really sums up Pod. Yeah, he's a giver. I, I'm, I'm, I believe it. And he pours <laughs> a really good cup of wine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And he uh, gives the, Brienne the best massages after long days of battle. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, because he's a sex prodigy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you, your head was in the gutter there. I was just talking about how he ends up being with with Brienne. Oh, okay. Or was I? <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. Maybe they. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll I'm just kidding. It was an innuendo. But uh, it's just funny how. I was like, like how he ends up loyally serving Brienne. She's like, go away. I don't need a squire, you know, and he just like will not go away. (laughs) So he really is like loyal to a fault. It's funny. Yes. He's has a servant's heart. Yeah. Willing to put himself in danger here for Tyrion. I mean, Tyrion's done a lot for him. So it's not like really a surprise that he would be willing to stick his neck out for Tyrion. But still, you know, he's he's pod. Yeah. You know, Tyrion's done a lot for him. But at the same time, squires don't get paid either so it's not like Tyrion was paying him to Mm. be his squire um i just think pod and Tyrion enjoyed each other's company and Mm -hmm. it's it was a great relationship and if i'm not mistaken Tyrion and pod don't see each other again until Tyrion comes back to king's landing with danny yeah i think you're right I think that's the next time that they see each other. So mm-hmm. it's quite a long time between now and that episode. Yeah, what a great um, reunion, though. Yes, because Pod and Braun are together, and Tyrion walks up, and they're all kind of walking along together they with must, Brienne. I bet they're all so glad that every, like each other are alive, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're kind of on opposite sides at this point at, 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 in season seven because Tyrion's with Danny, and obviously Bronn has been in King's Landing and Pod has been with Brienne. But, you know, you can tell that they're all 
relieved to see each other again. It's like yeah, old definitely. friends reconnecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> uh, that pretty much covers all of my notes for that scene. Anything else you want to add before we move on? Nope, I think that's good. All right, then what is your number one? So my number one was Tywin and Oberyn. And I know we discussed that scene in great detail. So Great. So let's jump into we... notes. Oh, you what what was your number one? I can't remember. Oh, my number one was um uh fair wages for fair work. Oh, okay. So um Haria. Yeah, yeah, around. <laughs> or around. <laughs> around. <laughs> okay. Around could be confused for like, you know, a preposition so haria makes more sense haria um <laughs> yeah so what are some of your notes let's see so we get to hear some dialogue between marjorie and lady elena and elena has some some great quotes she's trying to make marjorie feel better about the whole situation we covered that a little bit before but she has um, some precious <laughs> lines about her hu- ex-husband, who she calls a great doughy lump. I'd, s- <laughs> I'd sat next to at endless dinners and tedious gatherings, uh, which I thought was... And suffered just, through fathering my children. Yep, just hilarious. A great doughy lump. She's so funny, man. So they're discovering, they're talking about how she's like kind of queen. You know, it's funny too, because the queen of thorns is like queen in name, but not actually queen. And, and Marjorie's kind of like in that same position now where she's like, technically she's the queen, but she's like, not really the queen, you know, not so really, she's yeah. running everything. So there's a cool Good little parallel. parallel there between those two queens. Um, and uh, they're talking about their alliance with the Lannisters and how it's, in a precarious position, but it remains every bit as necessary for Lannister as it is for them, and uh, as unpleasant as it is for both of us, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, she says, you did wonderful work on Joffrey. The next one should be easier. <laughs> and she does learn like so much from Elena. Elena is her, her mentor and her closest confidant and everything that i like their relationship it's, it's cool. i do too it's a great dynamic yep and uh we've talked about this before in the podcast but take a look at you know a picture of natalie dormer next to a picture of diana um diana rigg who plays olena when she was younger and they look very very similar yes it's the cheekbones yeah so they definitely hired diana rigg and lady marjorie um to you know, um, Natalie Dormer together, knowing that they had looked very similar in their youth, which made the casting all the more powerful because it gives you a convincing, um, you know, resemblance for the family, which is cool. Absolutely. What about you? You got any notes you want to talk about? I do. I have Sam the Slayer. Yeah. So there he is, is, Sam the Slayer. This is, I think, the first time we hear actual term sam the slayer yeah, yeah. Away. Um, totally. you know we know when he becomes sam the slayer but this is the first time as a watcher that we hear sam the slayer and it's being used obviously as a derogatory statement coming from slimy jano slint who you know from previous episodes we know he's never been north of the wall he does not really believe in what they're holding the wall against essentially, which is the dead. 
Yeah. And I I noted that Janos is following Sir Alistair Thorne around like a little pup. Heck. Just like he reminded me <laughs> this is horrible. He reminds me of like a nerd at school trying to get in with like the popular crowd. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. You know, like he's scurrying to, you know, find a click to be a part of. And not just a click, the click of like who he thinks is going to be running the joint. Exactly. So it cuts over to um, Gilly and Sam, which is another pairing in this this um, kind of overall theme of of pairs that I kind of picked up on. Nice. Right, right. And, you know, Sam's making sure that she's safe and, and she's like, well, you know, I'm getting looked at and I hear them making their jokes, but but no one's touched me. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I just know that they're all lying there at night thinking about you, you know, picturing you. And she's like, well, yeah. what about you? You know, like, are you picturing yeah. me? <laughs> and he's like, Gilly? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I I know that in this scene, Sam is concerned about Gilly's safety. There's a hundred men. There's one woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's not horrible looking. But he, <laughs> this is the first time that Sam suggests that maybe she's safer somewhere else. And it's uh, sort of parallels Tyrion sending Shay away for her safety as well. Just the previous and episode. Pod. And Pod. And Pod, too. True. Yeah. Oh, so, man. you know, I, I did like that she was pretty positive. She's like, and nobody's touched me. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a good thing, you know. And, you know, they're plucking feathers off the goose and... She realizes in that moment that, you know, she she thinks that Sam is bored of her and trying to get rid of her. And it's actually quite the opposite. He's infatuated. Very, yeah, he's very concerned for her well-being. This is this is not a safe place for for many reasons. I mean, we have wildling armies marching on the wall from both directions, from both directions. <laughs> We have the dead, which Sam and Gilly have both seen. And they're actually fairly, that White Walker is fairly close to the wall, if, if I'm not mistaken, because Craster's Keep is not terribly far away from the wall. It's, right. it's a general stopping point between the wall and the far north. Mm-hmm. So it's it's close. I mean, that's... I mean, I'm not sure of the distance of Craster's Keep. I'd have to look at a map, but... Yeah, it's certainly relatively close. It's relatively close to the wall. And, you know, she gets very sad because it's like, oh, you're sending me away. I guess you're just done with me. And it's the total opposite. He's just looking out for her, but she clearly doesn't see it that way. And she's like, I'm going to go give these gooses to... Oh, what's his name? I forget his name. The cook. Oh, the uh, Hob. Hob, yes, <laughs> Hob. And, you know, you watch over little Sam, and she just kind of, like, slinks away. And you can tell that Sam is upset, upset. with himself. Mm-hmm. So would this but be love over duty or duty over love? I think it's or a little both. bit of... I think it's a little bit of both, because... Yeah, equally. He, he says to her, you know... 
I can't really protect you here because I can't stab my fellow brothers in the back. Yep. Yeah. Good you know, point. And we can't, I can't run away like we did at Craster's. So my hands are kind of tied here and you're in danger. And he does love her. So I think it's kind of both because he has taken his oath, which he takes extremely literally. But yeah. he, he, you know, abides by it just in a more literal sense. But... At the same time, he's trying to protect her. So I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I would say that love and duty both have the same result in this case. Yeah, I I think Sam is feeling that he has a duty of a man of the Night's Watch, but also a duty because the Night's Watch, as we have heard him say to Maester Aemon, guards the realms of men. That includes her. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and also, he loves her, so... Yeah. Speaking of the other realm of the wildlings, uh, she has a funny line a little bit earlier on where um, he basically says, what? you know, um, they're, he's saying, they, they think I'm lying, you know, about what? Killing the White Walker. You're, well, you're not lying. I'll never forget the way it screamed. But you're the only one that saw it, you know? And they all think you're just a... A what? Well, a, a wildling. A and, wildling. Yeah, she says, uh, my father hated that word. And Sam's like, well, it's it's not a very nice word, I suppose. And I like her response. I don't know. It makes me sound a bit dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah. That's <laughs> so cute. Yeah. That's classic. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of takes us to Molestown. Yeah. Which... Is not a nice place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could say that. That whore is freaky. She's fetching. Like, she gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> you know, and she's trying to figure out Gilly, and she's touching the baby, and being a mom with an infant like that, it's... You're like, don't touch my baby. It's very unnerving when people touch your small infant like that without asking. Like, it happens more often than not. And I tried to be fairly lenient about it, but it did bother me a lot when right. it happened. So you can kind of see her, like, tense up a little bit. And just a tiny bit of body language, which I thought was amazing acting. Yeah, definitely. Done by, you know, she kind of tenses up and just slightly, just slightly turns her body away. But doesn't do it to the fact where it's offensive and noticeable to the lady that was touching the baby. Right. Like I've seen Battlestar Galactica. I knows what happens when strangers touch your baby. (laughs) So, you know, and she's like pretty little thing. And you know, where are you from? And Gilly's like, Oh no, I'm North of here. (laughs) North of here. She's like North of here because there's nothing North. You're a fucking wildling. Oh, and she's so gross. It, she's such... We get ugh. to see more of her like in the future, right? Yeah, she burps the <laughs> bear and the maiden bear. Yeah, the, yeah, that was great. <laughs> so, it, you know, while she's having this conversation with the whore... She's like horribly awesome, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, she plays it so well. I mean, she's wretched looking. I mean, yeah. she's just rode hard and put away wet. Oh. <laughs> it's bad. Um... <laughs> 
you know, and while Gilly is kind of fending off this creepy lady, Sam is talking to... I call her creepy in my notes, too. (laughs) Yeah, the brothel keeper, who has a black eye, mind you. Oh, shit. (laughs) And, you know, she's like... And she can cook and clean and take care of the other women's babies. And, you know, she's like, you know, we have other work. Like, there'd be money. No other work. Yeah, no other work. (laughs) Give you a piece of it. No other work. Oh, and then it cuts right after Sam says that. I think they're cleaning out, like... A, a condom. condom. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that too. I had my nose. I'm gross. Looks like the wench on the left of the screen is washing out the condom. It's gross. Yes, it's so gross. And it's hilarious. It's probably like made you know, of intestines or something. Yeah, I would assume so. It's not pleasant to look at. They're cleaning <laughs> it out, which means it's being reused. <laughs> yeah. You got to reuse them back, you know, in that kind of circumstance. Yeah, so that's disgusting. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's also super, super gross. That's so funny we both noticed that. I don't know if I've ever really noticed that before. I've noticed it a couple of times, but I never really like thought past they were washing something out. And then until the rewatch, I was like, oh, my, that's a condom. God. Yeah. <laughs> so hilarious. I found it extremely sad. And very tense when Sam's trying to say goodbye to Gilly mm-hmm. because she's very mad at him. She's in this wretched place that yeah, is it's pretty gross, you know, clearly not really taking care of it. Most town serves one purpose and that's to serve the men of the night's watch. <laughs> Basically, so it's really not a place to raise children or live like a normal, like non-whore life. Yeah. So I think <laughs> non-whore life. I bet he would have tried to like send her to Winterfell or something, but you know, it's burned. Yeah. And it, Winterfell is still fairly far away. So I think in the interim, he's like, I can't go very far because we're about to be under siege. Most right, town right. is safer. It's, you know, probably like half a day's ride. Whereas I think Winterfell is like three or four days away. Little does he know he puts her right in the wildlings path. Oh, Big time. So, you know, I, I thought it was really sad. Little Sam starts crying as Big Sam leaves. Wait, you mean Sam's dick or the baby? Because I think Sam's dick was a little bit sad there, too, that Gilly was going to be gone. <laughs> Both. <laughs> his, his fat pink mast, as the books call it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's That's true. It's awesome. true. Like, you know, they have the sex scene on the show. Yeah, that it's in this in the book's version, it's described as a fat pink mast. Okay, so it's like chody. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. This is getting way too (laughs) creepy. (laughs) Yeah, it's um, it's a sad scene. Yeah, it's really sad. She's so mad she won't even look at him. Yeah, well, I would be too. And he's like, "Oh, Kelly." Oh, Gilly, please don't. (laughs) You have to trust me. It's for the best. (laughs) And then cue wildling attack next episode. Yeah. And (laughs) next scene. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think. The wildlings show up at Ollie's village. Yeah, we meet Ollie this episode. Who looks fucking terrified. (laughs) He's a little shit. Most Like, a lot of people didn't like a... 
the character in the later seasons, you know, but <laughs> he's pretty effective here at looking like a terrified little, little, little bitch. Which I think he is. I mean, he's just <laughs> walking next to his dad talking about his I know, mom it's so boiling horrible. potatoes and <laughs> so horrible. they're looking forward to dinner that night and it's just a normal every day for them in this little tiny village and then whack! his dad's died. Arrow to the spinal column. And then his mom, she's like, hide! And he's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And he sees his mom die and then yeah, his face he is has, all contorted. I think Caroline Collins mentioned that I think she's right that that's the Magnar of the Thens. Yeah, it seems to be on the show, yeah. I think she's right, at least mm-hmm. in this, you know, in the show He's definitely realm. the boss of this crew of Thens, for sure. Yeah, and so he's grabbing his face, and he's like, you see your parents over there? And they're, like, carving them up like so Thanksgiving creepy. turkey. And she's like, I'm going to eat your dead mama, and I'm going to eat your dead papa. Open your eyes, you know, yeah. do you know where Castle Black is? Go tell the crows we're coming for him. And, you know, Ollie is a little innocent boy at that point. But, you know, going to the wall and being surrounded by men, you know, kind of gruff men and dangerous men, mm-hmm. you know, I think he morphs kind of into that later character that people don't like very much right he like idolizes the certain aspects of them without like the full philosophical perspective and he takes on like some certain of their their characteristics that you wouldn't necessarily want a little kid to like he ends up stabbing john snow you know for instance yeah and he's definitely grown more into more of a, a man in that when that occurs but in yeah. this particular scene you do feel for him and yep Man, imagine being that actor, you know, like the, the the Magnar there as he's like grabbing the kid's face and I'm going to eat Ugh. your dead mama. And, uh, it, it, you know, so that gross. scene in season one where Khal Drogo like kind of rapes Danny on their wedding night or, mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, and she's crying during during filming that, apparently in between all the takes, Jason Momoa would like lean over and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, sorry Aww. we have to do that. You know? So, so. I'm like, so are, sorry are you okay? I have to grope you, okay? you. Yeah, are you okay, Amelia? You know, type thing. So I'm just picturing this this Magnar of thin in between takes, like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Like little I'm boy, not really talking boy about actor. Your <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I do kind of feel for Ollie in the later seasons as well, because I think the age that he is at when he goes to the wall is an extremely impressionable age. Yeah, totally. And he's just witnessed a terrible tragedy with his family and his whole village for that matter. I mean, talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And then he has his own preconceived notions of wildlings because they did. They ruined his life. They decimated everything he knew and held held dear. He, yeah. And then, you know, he kind of gets in with Alistair Thorne and because they share the same sentiment as the wildlings. And I think he's just led down a path because he's impressionable and not... Yep. Logically making his own decisions about how he feels about this particular situation. He's projecting previous situations on the one that ends up, you know, stabbing Jon Snow with, which is completely natural and normal. It's yeah. just annoying it's for exacerbated. the viewer. <laughs> yeah, it's exacerbated because he's a teenager. Right. Yeah, definitely. And impressionable. You know, he's too young to rationally work through those 
thoughts and process them. And it's even difficult for adults to do. Yeah, definitely. So I agree that he's hard to like in the later seasons, but it's an unfortunate series of events that lead him to that because he's at such a young age. Right. And it it's, all goes down. it's sort of also like understood that the people like the Ollie haters, you know what I mean? They're like those, like the rabid, like TV show viewers who are like <laughs> have extreme totally. views of stuff like fuck that little kid, you know? <laughs> like, of course. Bitch, like he's, you know? Yeah. He's completely just jumping just on the kid, band, like, the bandwagon and not yeah. really making logical decisions. So yep. it's, it's hard to like someone with no backbone. Yeah, there's a little foreshadowing this episode too when he's hiding under the cart and uh, he lo- he looks over yonder and sees Igrit and sort of like oh, yeah. every- it goes kind of like quiet and it focuses in on her and it's just sort of foreshadowing how that same thing happens when he ends up killing Igrit. Um, yep, at that's the wall. right. And he kills her with a bow. Yep, her own weapon. Like not, mm-hmm. not her bow like from her back, but yeah, sure. the same you know weapon, cho- weapon of choice. Which is brutal. So fun fact in this scene, the music that's playing in the background as the wildlings attack this village, there is a horn that blows. It's a 40 foot horn. What? <laughs> yeah. No way. And the reason I know this is because I've gone to the Game of Thrones live concert experience and they have this horn on stage and it literally Damn. is 40 feet long That's and so it cool. is loud as fuck. <laughs> That's fucking killer, man. I'm going to have to pay it's attention to that. It's so next loud. Time. It's awesome. I think you'll hear it again when the wildlings attack Castle Black because that's the scene that was playing on the big screen when they were when playing they were blasting it on stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's killer. I'll it's intense. I'll have to look it up. It's not as loud in the show because it would be like deafening in <laughs> yeah. an enclosed arena. <laughs> oh, it yeah, was really loud. It was yeah, awesome. 40 feet. That's so cool. It's a 40 foot horn and they had like the circular stage and there is the, the horn blower in the middle and the horn wrapped around him like a nice. snake. That's sick. And he like literally had to like push his whole body into blowing that horn. Oh yeah. It was intense. It was awesome. That's really cool too, because in the, in the books there's like dragon horns, you know, like other horns that are like pretty intense to blow. So it's sort of like a little homage having like a crazy horn up on stage like that, that somebody has got to like really work to make some sound come out of. Yeah. It's intense. It's like the world's biggest didgeridoo. (laughs) (laughs) Sick. So at, at the beginning of this scene, when Ollie's dad gets shot in the spinal column, like where, right where it connects with the skull, uh, it's it's horrible. But the 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 timing is like hilariously comedic, kind of. Like uh, the, the actor is like hamming it up too beforehand. He's like, "Well, no one boils a potato better than your mom," you know. And like he's so into it, and then whack, like right in the back of the neck, and, and then the mom so gets bad. butchered on the spot too. Um, just, yeah, that was intense. Yeah, it's just just kind of funny a little bit also. <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but uh, just like the timing or something made me laugh. But yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. Don't get me it's wrong. It's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, man. She's like telling her son to go run and hide and then she's yeah, just and this, like, whacked. Yeah, that Magnar's big ass battle axe just comes that crushing That is such down. an awesome weapon, though. Yeah, it is pretty cool, huh? 
He's he is intense. Yeah, he's big. Whoever that actor is, he's big and he plays that role perfectly. Who'd you play, couldn't uh, ask for a better casting. Yeah, he'd play a menacing skinhead, I bet. He's intense for sure. Yeah. I just like his whole his whole demeanor, the way he talks, the intensity of his eyes, he stays calm. I mean, it's he's a great they casted him perfectly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Sir Alistair is actually right about something in this episode. He realizes that the wildlings are going to draw them out. And that's why they sent Ollie as a messenger to try to draw them out of Castle Black so they can mm-hmm. pick them off a few at a time. And this is um, Ollie's first opportunity to be mad at Jon Snow about something. When it, this is, It's funny, too, because Alistair doesn't like Jon Snow, but he knows Jon Snow is smart enough to know that Alistair is right about this decision. So he sort of calls on Jon Snow to bridge the gap between any like um between like the divide of ideologies and the realm. He's like, You're a champion of the people, Jon Snow. What do you say to Brother Pip's proposition? And John basically says, Mance is coming and we have to stop them. We can't, you know, no none of us can die before that. And so he chooses not to go avenge offensively Ollie's family, and that could that could be the first seed of dislike in Ollie about Jon Snow, but they're like kind of sitting together throughout this scene, which is interesting. Yeah. And this is where we, this scene is where we kind of learned that from Maester Eamon, that there's just a little over a hundred men. And that includes everybody, including Maester Eamon. Yeah. Who is a, uh... Definitely not somebody to call on for a sword fight. <laughs> no. And, you can't aim a bow very well. You know, to John's testament, you know, he goes, they outnumber us like 100 to 1. And uh, who is it? Is it... Um, it would really be 1,000 to 1. If, oh, 1,000 to 1. I'm I mean, sorry. Yes, you're right. 1,000 to 1. And he's like, I don't think I could kill a hundred wildlings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Foreshadowing his own death, just trying to kill yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Poor he Pip. kills one, and then I think he's reloading and gets... Yeah, a, yeah, I think a, you're that right. Was a, that's a painful death. Oof, mm-hmm. Lord. Thanks, Grit. Was it a Grit that got him? I'm not sure we know who gets him, because he's talking to Sam, and an arrow just comes whistling in and just gets him right in the neck yeah it's pretty vicious um sam's like really sad by that too (laughs) um so he makes a point that carl and the other mutineers at craster's keep are aware of the truth of the numbers of of the soldiers at castle black and so um whereas alistair alistair says justice can wait about going and getting revenge for jor marmont john says no 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 they know how many of, of us there are and how long do you think they'll keep that information to themselves when the wildlings are peeling their fingernails off, you know? Yeah, John says Mance has all he needs to crush us and he just doesn't know it yet. Right. Yeah, that's a really good line. It's uh it's pretty fucked up. It's true. Man, yeah, just imagine if he sent people to climb the wall on both sides of of Castle Black, he could have armies coming from the north, the south, and the east and the west on top of the wall on the the wall, you know? Yeah, they wouldn't hold a candle. I mean, it would be over before it even really begins. Yeah, there's a lot more cool details of in the books of how they try to make it seem like Castle Black is, has more men than they really do. 
Um, so you guys oh, will, really, yeah, like, do they to... put like scarecrows up and stuff? <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> something like that. I'll have to read it though. It's, it's pretty good. In the books. Yeah. Um, this is also the scene where the night's watch learns that the Lord commander is dead. Oh, so oh, that's cause, uh, right. Cause, um, Ed Dolores Ed shows up and spills the beans on the mutineers, huh? And Gren. Yeah. So, right. cause Alistair's like, what took you so long? And he's like, we were held up in chains. Yeah. What held you back? Chains. I mean, they didn't really say out front that Mormont was dead, but he called them the mutineers and they all picked up on it instantly that that meant Mormont's dead. Yeah. And even if it wasn't said explicitly there, it certainly was said off screen, like shortly thereafter, you know, off camera. So now they know and their Lord Commander is dead. And that's quite a ripple in the Night's Watch at a time that they need a leader. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Pretty brutal. So uh, it, it's it's going to be fun watching um, Sam manipulate the scales and everything again to help uh, John end up being named the Lord Commander in the upcoming scenes or, uh, you know, seasons. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing that again. I always enjoy the the scenes at the wall. Yeah, me too, for sure. What other uh, notes you have to talk about? Um, so I have just a couple more bullet points. I have Stannis and Davos. Yeah, you're a literary man now. <laughs> Stannis like has some funny lines, man, but he never gets any credit for being funny as hell. No, because he just. They're so serious. It's like he says them, but there's like no sense of humor behind it. Right. It's like a it's serious like, statement. Does he not know that they're funny? Like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's. I just think like he's, he's, some of his lines are just so funny. He's got a couple in this episode too. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go for it. Um, so I love, again, this kind of echoes Melisandre's gloating about Rob Stark being dead. Stannis is gloating about Joffrey's death and tossing the leech into the fire. True. And, you know, he's kind of digging at Davos and... For setting free the bastard. For setting him free. He's like, I have this primo position and I can't do anything about it because you let this one kid go. And Davos is like, well, I've, you know, I've gotten some houses to come to your aid and he starts naming off the houses and house peasbury house musgood <laughs> and he's like ripping off sails of the boat and throwing them on the table as he's <laughs> and they go stannis goes combined they don't have enough men between them to raid a pantry <laughs> i love that i just thought it great was line. great it's, it's so such funny, a great man. line so they they keep talking and they're i love how they're always arguing with each other but there's a mutual respect like level of respect it's always constructive arguing exactly it's like we're disagreeing to come to a solution yeah and davos is talking about sailing you know to the east and getting paying some sellswords and stannis totally scoffs at that idea and 
and Davos goes, what, you're willing to win the throne using blood magic, but you're not willing to pay men to fight? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, it's a good point. It is. And, you know, he goes, and even if we didn't, we don't have the gold to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Stannis is like, my time is now if I'm going to keep my my claim to the throne alive. Yeah, I, you exactly. know, I refuse to be a, a page in someone else's history book, which I thought was another great line because yeah, then definitely, we definitely cut right over to Shireen and Davos, which is another little pairing. Yep. And Shireen is all over Davos about reading. And he's like, you're relentless. The both of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What does he say? You and your your father father's daughter. No mistake. <laughs> Bloody <Yeah>. relentless. <laughs> <laughs> It's true because she's like all over him, and you, you know, won't be a very like, good hand if you see the word knight and say "cunigit." Cunigit. <laughs> <laughs> she's so funny. So, you know, she calls him a pirate, and he corrects her, and you know, she's like, "I don't really get the difference," and he's like, "Well, if you're a famous smuggler, you're not doing it right," which right. is totally true. My father says a criminal is a criminal. Yeah, and he goes, your father lacks appreciation of the finer points of bad behavior. Yeah, of the nuances of, <laughs> of being bad. Oh, that's so, hilarious. you know, again, Shireen is throwing a book at Davos, and now it's a book on Bravos. Mm. And I find it funny that we... The last, kind of the last sentence that Stannis says is, I refuse to be a you know, a page in someone else's history book. And we cut over to Shireen, who's like kind of a history buff who reads about other mm-hmm. people. And he was also talking about how they don't have enough gold. Like, we don't have any gold. How are we supposed yes. to do anything? So what, as him and Shireen are kind of doing their cute little banter back and forth, which I love that it kind of mirrors his relationship with Stannis is on a, a much, much lighter level. It really does. Um, Usually it doesn't really mirror his relationship with Stannis with, with, with Shireen, no. I don't think. But this one definitely does, this interaction. Yeah, and I think it's because he's irritated <laughs> yeah. after talking to Stannis. He's like, God, your dad is driving me up the wall. Like, yep. he just, he's, he just he can't reason with the guy. And she's all over him like, you're late. Like, you got to learn how to read. You got to learn how to do this. And he's like, God, get off me. (laughs) And, but then, you know, as they're talking, all of a sudden he gets this, it's like a light bulb goes off and he's like, oh my gosh, the iron bank. And he's like, get, you know, get a quill and paper. I need you to write this down. And she's like, it's better if you do it. And she, he goes, I need a smart person to do it for me. Right now. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was just so cute. So. Yeah. It's so funny. It's, yeah, it's great too. They're like having conversation about Bravos and he's like, I almost got beheaded by the first, by a first sort of Bravos tried to explain the difference between pirates and smugglers to him too, but he didn't see any more distinction than your father, which is funny. <laughs> and then um, the, the Iron Bank just sort of casually comes up in conversation. You know, I suppose if you work for the Iron Bank of Bravos and each one of your gold barges is worth half a kingdom, you tend not to be overly concerned with the this kind of distinction. And then that's when it hits him. Like he, he like like walks over and like, like walks away and like has like an epiphany visually and then comes back and 
kisses Shireen on the head. What was that for? <laughs> yeah. He's like, you're a genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just kind of a cute moment. Like, she has sort of a funny little reaction to it. And She's like, what is happening? Yeah, they're, uh, they just have a great dynamic. You know, I love the relationship between Davos and Shireen. Me too. It's it's a really good one. So, yeah, I need a smart person to do it for me. <laughs> oh, the other interesting thing is that he uh, he's dictating what to write to the offices of the Iron Bank and of Bravos from Stannis Baratheon, the one true king of Westeros. And she says, "But that's not you. You know, like you're not Stannis, the one true king." And he's like, "I need. I just need to get their attention. Go on, write." And it's it's just funny to me that Shireen like kind of goes along with this deception. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, you know, I I try to find overlying themes to episodes, and I really do think we've touched on all of the pairings that I came across. And yeah, we pretty much Little touched Finger, on everything. Yeah, Littlefinger and Sansa, Haria, Tywin and Tommen, <laughs> Tywin and Oberyn. Pod and Tyrion, Cersei and Jaime, Stannis and Davos, Davos and Shireen. Yep. Sam and Gilly, Elena and Marjorie. So. Oh, and Gilly and the creepy whore. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, do you have any? Do you have any other notes? Nope. That uh, pretty much covers everything. Awesome. Definitely. Same with you, huh? I'm. Yeah. I don't have any other notes. Great. Okay, so let's uh, take a little break and we'll be right back. some news about Game of Thrones. First, from Express. Game of Thrones' George R.R. R. Martin reveals where he would live in Westeros or Essos. By George Simpson. The fantasy book series is full of bustling cities, towns, and settlements, all created by Martin's imagination. But given the choice, just where would Game of Thrones' author choose to live? Perhaps King's Landing, Winterfell, or even Volantis to the east, but surely not the Wall. Now, Martin has revealed the location of his choice in a new interview. Speaking with the New York Times, Martin said, Oh, I would probably... The free city of Bravos and Essos would be a cool place to live. According to the Game of Thrones wiki, Bravos is the northernmost, the richest, and arguably the most powerful of the free cities. Described as a city of seafarers and master swordsmen, Bravos consists of hundreds of tiny islands connected by stone bridges. That's cool. I, I knew there was like canals and stuff. I didn't realize there was a ton of islands. That's awesome. Yeah. Its main landmarks include the Titan of Bravos, which is like the uh, sort of like the Statue of Liberty or like the Titan at uh, the massive Colossus of Alexandria, which was lost to time as well. And the city's famed Iron Bank, which is becoming more and more involved in our conversations these days, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. <laughs> Bravos is heavily inspired by some Renaissance European mercantile republics, of which Venice is the most famous. From The Cut, Extremely Large Man Marries a Very Small Canadian Lady by Erica Smith. <laughs> Thor Julius Bjornsson plays Sir Gregor Clegane the Mountain on Game of Thrones. More importantly, he is six foot nine and currently the strongest man in the world. Even more importantly, he got married this weekend in his native Iceland to a 5'2 Canadian bodybuilding woman named Kelsey Morgan Henson. According to TMZ, the two hit it off at a bar in Alberta after Henson asked for a picture with Bjornsson. Couples photos usually induce Liz Lemon grade eye rolls, but viewing pictures of these two together just makes you believe in love again. Take the wedding photo Bjornsson posted over the weekend in which he writes, I get to hold this beautiful woman through thick and thin for the rest of our lives. I'm so excited for all of the future adventures we will tackle side by side. It's cute because it's true. A review of both their glorious Instagram accounts <laughs> proves that A, Bjornsson is really good at holding this beautiful woman in a variety of positions. <laughs> and B, the two lovebirds are really good at tackling a variety of things, literally standing side by side. And a cheers to the happy couple and their recent nuptials. We've rounded up a handful of heartwarming picks that best represent this happily ever after. It's been a rough Week for love, you deserve this. And we'll uh, post a link to facebook.com slash GOM podcast of this so you guys can check out all the pictures. I can't wait to see those. Yeah. That's funny. He's 6'9 and she's 5'2. <laughs> yeah. Oh <my> God. <laughs> hilarious. So uh, the next little tiny bit of news we have is uh, Nespresso also released kind of a funny commercial um, featuring Natalie Dormer as a queen and with George Clooney wearing full plate armor, which is uh, clearly a spoof inspired by Game of Thrones. It's just kind of a cool uh, little watch. So we'll post that up on Facebook too for you guys. Awesome. I can't wait to watch that. I'm sure yeah. it's funny. <laughs> Let's move on to Game of Thrones and history. Continuing on with our article from Ranker.com, Real Historical Figures Who Inspired Game of Thrones Characters by Tricia Soraya's Murray. The Knights Templar is the Knights Watch. Nice. This is cool. I like the Knights Templar. Yeah, me too. The Knights Templar have a long and convoluted history that is as much myth as reality, similar to the Knights Watch and their tales of the long night. Knights Templar had to take an oath of chastity, poverty, and unending loyalty when they joined the order, and in return, they were absolved of all prior sins. That's the exact deal that those who take the black receive as well. Both groups are charged with protecting a realm against outside invaders, Westeros for the Night's Watch and the Holy Land for the Knights Templar, and both are led and elected by a leader who serves for life. Both would eventually fall into disrepute after storied histories. That's cool. I really hadn't thought about this much before, so it's... Um... It's neat to see these two groups connected. Yeah. Mad King Charles the Sixth is Mad King Ares. There have been pl there have been plenty of Mad Kings in history, 
that Westeros's most infamous maniacal monarch is most similar to Charles VI of France. Mad King Charles was known for his paranoid psychosis, which caused him to see enemies everywhere and punish them harshly. On one occasion, Charles executed several of his own knights because one of them accidentally dropped a lance. Damn. <laughs> Mad King Ares II of Westeros was prone to similar outbursts. Both kings had a connection with fire. Ares was obsessed with it, and Charles VI was said to have been driven mad in part by a youthful incident that nearly saw him burned to death. Burn them all! Burn them Burn all! Them all. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next is William the Conqueror is Aegon the Conqueror. The similarities between Aegon the Conqueror and William the Conqueror extend well beyond their boastful nicknames. Both figures were overseas invaders who bent an entire continent to their will. In the case of Aegon, it was Westeros, and for William, it was England. William may be considered the superior conqueror, as he did not have the benefit of three enormous dragons to aid his <laughs> conquering. That would be a true statement. Yeah, <laughs> Unless you use the dragons as part of your calculation, in which case um, Aegon would be the superior conqueror. Because <laughs> nothing is going up against those dragons, except for Dorne somehow. Somehow, with their <laughs> fireproof roofs. Um. The historical parallels between the two isn't just obvious to readers. George R.R. R. Martin has straight up said Aegon's story was, in, was inspired by William. Nice. Interesting. Rasputin is Melisandre. A shady figure claiming magical abilities rises from poverty to ingratiate themselves within a royal family, gaining the trust of both the king and queen. Although the magic powers of this mysterious figure impress the royals, who increasingly rely on their guidance, the figure remains unpopular with the general public due to their extremist views. Plots are made to take this alleged magician out, but they demonstrate an uncanny ability to cheat death. Now, is this a description of Melisandre the Red Priestess, or Grigory Rasputin, a Russian mystic and also the subject of a disco classic? Nice. Very interesting. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. They even look kind of similar. <laughs> <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Next, we have Genghis Khan is also Daenerys Targaryen. Genghis, except Genghis had like a million babies. Did he really? Yeah, it's like uh, it's like one percent of all Asians are descended from Genghis Khan or something like that. Some ridiculous. Oh my god, that's man. crazy. Yeah, I had like, no idea. Yeah, it's like him and Wilt the Stilt for like you know having sex with the most people. Wow. Yeah, Genghis that's would have sex with like seven or more women a day or something like ridiculous. That's insane. Yeah. Sorry, just yeah, like no, that's that's funny. <laughs> It's like, okay, you got nothing better to do, apparently. Well, what <laughs> Just, better is there to do, really? Uh, that's true. True statement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Dothraki are obviously at least partially inspired by the Mongolian hordes of the Middle Ages. Like the Dothraki, the Mongolians were a militaristic people renowned for their prowess on horseback and their warrior culture. Also like the Dothraki, the Mongolians were once scattered across the Eurasian steppe in small hordes until they were united by a charismatic leader bent on invading another continent. 
Genghis Khan and his Mongol Empire, unified in the 13th century, sought to expand into Europe while Daenerys Targaryen set her eyes on Westeros. Thus far, it remains to be seen whose invasion will be more successful. <laughs> That's a good one, too. And I can't ever go without, like, I can't ever go hearing the word Mongol or Mongolian and not thinking about that episode of South Park where the Mongolians knocked down my <laughs> shitty wall, my shitty Chinese food. <laughs> That's so true. That's so funny. That's such a funny episode. You love it. Caw, caw. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Duncan the Tall, I will make Lord Tyrion's words my own and say, I did not kill Joffrey, but I wish that I had. Watching your vicious bastard die gave me more relief than a thousand lying whores. That child irritated me so much that he made my ashes itch. <laughs> it's truly too bad that the books don't have that exact statement. That's true. Usually the books are better than the show, but... That's a good line. Yeah, that could have yeah been. That's, a good, that's a good one for sure. Yeah, there are a few shining examples where the show makes improvements on the books, and that's definitely one of them. Honor to hear from Sir Duncan the Tall. Thank you so much for your feedback. Sir Matthew of House Rep. Arya has been playing the Game of Faces ever since the end of season one. First as Ari, the young boy headed to take the black. Then as the mysterious nobleborn, yet trying to pass as lowborn cupbearer for Tywin at Harrenhal. <laughs> and as a beggar looking for food from Frey soldiers. In this episode, she really gets some practice coming up with a backstory for her and the Hound as Tully soldiers looking for a place to stay the night. I find the scene in the catacombs with Jamie and Cersei to be as hard to watch as the Red Wedding. At this point in Jamie's redemption arc, to have him rape his sister on top of his dead son does a real disservice to the character, especially when this is not how it is written in the books. Yeah, that's an unfortunate the way it t played out because mm -hmm. it was the change was unintentional during the the shooting and scripting. So yeah, it's just sucks that it kind of turned out that way. For sure. Ah, the introduction to poor Ollie. I remember how much I hated him when he was the final one to stab John in the Night's Watch revolt, but watching his origin, it is hard not to understand how he felt betrayed when John and Tormund became buddy-buddy. Sir Patrick of Hindsight says, Random thought. Cersei oversaw the creation of Jaime's prosthetic gilded steel. Now she's enlisting the Golden Company. Beneath the gold. Beneath the gold lies the steel. Mm-hmm. Nice. Lord Pete Clark, commenting on our last episode, Lady Rachel, says, At track marker, about 27 minutes, you guys discussed Tywin Lannister uncharacteristically taking Shay into his bed. It is not uncharacteristic for him to symbolically act as a symbolic lion to consume his enemies. Like dressing a stag, King Robert, while talking to Sir Jamie about stepping up for House Lannister. Or in a deleted scene where he talks to the Grand Maester and pulls trout after trout, House Tully, out of the river as he is battling and winning in the Riverlands. Just last episode, he consumed House Stark and melted down ice and Sansa with her claim to Winterfell. The Starks, for the benefit of House Lannister, in taking Shay, he is consuming Tyrion. Although it is not covered anywhere I can see, in my mind's eye, Tywin Lannister having a long drink of water 
while watching his men engineer the shifting of the river to drown house rain in their own gold mine slash mountain keep. Yeah, that'd be crazy. I can totally see him doing that, drinking a big glass as he's playing and drowning them all. (laughs) Of rainwater. Yeah, that's hardcore. Nice. Hi, Duncan. This is Caroline, Lady Caroline Collins. Hi, Lady Caroline. (laughs) This was a great episode again. Um, the following of the purple wedding we get to see sort of how all the characters are recovering and it was it's really interesting to see so I've, I've got a few points um i wanted to mention and the first was uh the hound and aria meet the riverlanders <laughs> um sally and her dad and uh i just uh this really this little storyline that kind of connects with this season and season seven um really uh really had an effect on me. I did notice that they sort of, they come back to them in season seven later on and we get to see the repercussions of the Hound's actions in this situation. And it's, it's cool because it's the show's way of um, really showing the audience the sad state of the Riverlands. We get to see it a little bit more in the books because we have several different point of view characters in that area. But right now we only have the Hound and Arya in the Riverlands following the War of the Five Kings. And so we get to see firsthand how much has been destroyed and how many people are in danger. There's gangs of um, all, all sorts of different kings, the king's men, so, as they, they're so-called, or the, the mountain's men going around and raping and pillaging wherever they want to and taking everybody's gold and taking the crops and whatever they need to do to survive. And it really is crazy. You feel bad for the Riverlanders. I mean, that area is just, i it's kind of like the, the area of the new gift by the wall. You know, they get so much raiding and everything. You're surprised that those people don't just move out of that area. Go move to the Reach where it's nice and warm. I just, I don't know if I could live in that area and be constantly in fear of who's going to declare war next and just uh, take on the rest. So, yeah, the Riverlands are, uh, if anybody who doesn't know, they're bordering on the most kingdoms uh, out of all of the um, seven kingdoms. I think they border the Stormlands, they border the Westerlands, they border the Reach, um, and uh, the the area of the Neck is even, I think, pretty close to the north. So there's just so many different um, factions warring at the same time um, that it's just it's just hellish for the people that live in that area. Um, so anyway, you get to see this um, this little girl and her dad, and they're sort of living day by day, trying to survive. And the hound Denaria come in and just you know the hound just takes all their stuff and leaves. And it's interesting because they. Like I said, we see the aftermath of that. And I have to say, like, when I saw them again and their little bodies curled up in the corner, like, tears came to my eyes. I was like, oh, this sucks. Um, And it's crazy how, like, a 10-minute scene can do that. You know, it can establish those characters, make you worried about them. And then, um, you know, and and bring them back three seasons later and you recognize them, you know exactly what happened. Um, And and you get to see the hound. dig their graves and bury them in, in the yard, um, which I thought was a really cool uh, nod to the books as well to be um, to happen later on. So it really was um, a really cool way for the show to, to do that. And I thought that was a great connection um, for the Hound. And we get to see how the Hound's character changes. He really 
he does change in the time that he's with Arya, and then he changes um, even after she's left for Bravos um, with his time um, with Beric Dondarrion and those guys, and um, the time he spent with the church and everything. I think it, the the whole incident with Brienne kind of makes him contemplate who he is and uh, makes him uh, change his thoughts a little bit so that when he does encounter those people again, he probably regrets his actions. So that was really cool to see. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Tywin. Um, I love Tywin in this episode. And I have to say, I've never really had a huge connection with Tywin. I've always struggled with those characters that don't seem to have a lot of charisma and, um, you know, he might not be terribly funny. He doesn't crack a lot of jokes like mm -hmm. Tyrion. Um, but he does, he, it is really interesting to see the way that he can, um, manipulate and, and change the circumstances to benefit himself. And, um, you know, what he sees is his family's, um, benefit. You know, it's, I think it's more about him than it is about his family, but, um, but I, I got it when he was talking to Oberyn the most, because I'm thinking here's, uh, here's somebody that Tywin wouldn't normally be be seeking solace with you know Oberyn's he had to kick all the the whores out before he could talk to him and we know how he feels about whores but he talks to Oberyn and now he's taking this guy who um he knows he has a grudge against him and he he's going to take him and put him on the he's going to put him on the small council he's going to make him a judge in the trial and the way I see it what he's doing here is he's saving Tyrion's life He's saying Oberyn's not gonna he's not gonna decide to um to kill Tyrion because they've had that conversation. He knows that they get along. He said that you guys have talked at length and um so and he sees that they have th those things in common. So he's he knows that Oberyn is is not gonna convict Tyrion of the murder. He's also possibly thinking that maybe Hoberyn had something to do with it, which we know he didn't, but He's, you could see from his point of view that it could be a possibility. He's trying to save this situation. He's got a daughter who's absolutely convinced that his son killed the king. Oh, no. Daughter that's convinced, yeah, that Tyr Tyrion killed the king. And uh, she's on the warpath. She wants him dead. And so he's like, all right, we've got to save this situation. I've, I, is there a way that I can have my, you know, my daughter be happy and at the same time um, my son be saved? And he's also looking at strengthening those ties with Dorne and trying to recover that um, that relationship, try to bring them back into the fold because, like he says, they do have um, worries outside the realm. They have Daenerys, who is, I don't know if he really believes that she's a threat, but that's what that's his party line at the moment. <laughs> we have threats outside of our kingdom. We have to make sure that we're protected. And Dorne is a famous Targaryen sympathizer, so they might be the first um, to turn turn over to um, Daenerys' side if she ever crosses the Narrow Sea. So he's thinking uh, that far ahead. He's thinking, uh, you know, how do I get these guys to stay on our side? Super cool. And he's, you know, he's just constantly calculating, um, thinking of ways to make everything benefit him. And same thing with the, with Tommen, you know, um, when he's, they're, they're talking over joffrey's dead body and he's like your brother wasn't a good king you know he's not a good guy but you you know you can be a good king all you have to do is listen to me um so 
he's looking for a situation where he was in, you know, before when he was friends with the Mad King and he was, you know, before before Ares was a Mad King, he was actually a pretty jovial guy and, you know, kind of let Tywin do all the hard work, let him run the kingdom for him. And the place was actually a pretty great place to be before the king went mad. Tywin had control of everything. He loved having his hand in everything. And I think Robert Baratheon, to a certain extent, allowed him that, too. You know, he had uh, he had his ear because he was married. Mary Robert Baratheon was married to his daughter. You know, he had everything under his under his little thumb. So he was happy as a clam up there in Castle Rock, controlling everything from where he was. But uh, now it's he's had Joffrey, who is not the easiest guy to control. And you can tell he was starting to get real frustrated with him in the last few episodes. So he's now seeing, OK, this is an opportunity to turn this around. I can get back to where I was where I was in control and I, I could kind of forge these alliances and make sure that, um, you know, our family's name is, is well uphold, upheld. So really interesting with Tywin. I liked that this episode. Um, and finally, Daenerys. I loved um, the way she did the, the breaker of chains right at the end. You see all the, the chains uh, against the walls. And that got me to thinking that... Um, Daenerys really does have a great way of finding battle tactics that work and they work because of the power structures in the area that she's working with. She she knows how to read the people, she knows how to how to sort of turn people against each other um in a way that benefits her in the long run, which in a way kind of mirrors what Tywin does, um but in a totally different way because she's not looking to benefit herself as much as she's looking to benefit her future subjects and the people that are already um serving her in in her armies and as her subjects. Um so that was really cool and I'm I'm interested to see what she's going to do in season 8 because she really hasn't hasn't reached her full potential in Westeros. I feel like she's not She's not performing at her top strength, um, and uh, and she really needs to use that um, that strategy that she does so well in seeing as um, as uh, Missande says. You know, there's always a path that maybe your advisors don't see, only you see, and I think that that's something that she can do in the future. She just hasn't had a chance yet. So I'm interested to see that in season eight. That's all I have for Breaker of Chains. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Bye. Good feedback. Oh, yeah. Thank you, as always, Lady Caroline. Hello, Sir Duncan. It's Zach again. Seven blessings to you, good sir. And you as well. These are my notes and comments from uh, Breaker of Chains. To start off with, a great quote from Littlefinger. Money buys a man's silence for a time. A bolt in the heart buys it forever. Uh, very true. Uh, <laughs> very true done. words uh, he speaks there. Uh, poor Dantos. Uh, I get the feeling that Dantos knew he wasn't going to live through this because when he gave Sansa the necklace in the last episode or maybe two episodes ago, he says um, something to the effect of um, the necklace being the last thing House Hollard is going to do before their name disappears forever. Oh, yeah. So Good foreshadow. I think he had a good idea that he wasn't going to make it out alive. Um, okay, I think Littlefinger basically pins Joffrey's murder on Sansa when he crushes up um, the stone from the necklace and then sweeps the necklace and the broken pieces into the boat with uh, poor dead Dantos. 
Um, I'm guessing he does this so it makes it... It depends on Sansa, but that basically makes her have to flee the city and thus go with him. And so he can basically be in control of her and use her as a pawn, which, you know, we know that he ends up doing. But anyway, I just I had forgotten that he crushed up that necklace and swept it into the boat with Dantos. Um, I feel like that was certainly done on purpose. Um, an interesting scene transition. Olena is talking with Marjorie about how Tommen will be a lot better or, and that she'll be better off with Tommen than she would have been with Joff. And then that scene transitions to Tywin uh, grooming Tommen uh, for to be the king. He's grooming him over J- Joffrey's dead body right there in the <laughs> sept, despite Cersei's protests. So, um, you know, that's, you know, I think kind of showing you uh, where Elena was at with um, the difference between Tommen and uh, Joffrey and how that was going to bode for uh, Marjorie in her marriage. Um, my next note was, uh, it's kind of funny. Tywin starts to give Tom and the birds and the bees talk as they're walking out of the sept. And I was like, okay, well, his grandfather's going to give him that speech because he doesn't have a father, uh, to give him that talk. But wait, just then they bump into Jamie, obviously Tommen's actual father, but uh, not a father figure in his life. And, uh, another funny part of that I thought was, um, Tywin goes to tell Tom, and it's all very straightforward. <laughs> and they bump in, and then they bump into Jamie. And I think that um, that struck me as pretty funny. It's like, yeah, it's pretty straightforward, unless you're boinking your sister. <laughs> uh, and then of course Jamie goes into the sept to do what he does there, and that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Um, when Arya gets questioned by that traveler on the road about who they fought for, what house they fought for, she used her street smarts to. Um, to know that she was in the Riverlands. So the best answer uh, to try and give the guy was that they fought for House Tully. So it just shows you how how keen and uh, how quick-witted and smart Arya is. Um, we learned a lot about Guest Right um, from the Red Wedding and then uh, Bran's story about the rat cook. But uh, here the Hound sort of commits what I'll call reverse Guest Right betrayal. He was the guest. But he basically betrayed the the uh, the man and his daughter by uh, taking taking their silver and um, basically bonking him on the head and leaving him um, leaving him for dead. And of course, in season seven, uh, I think it was season seven, he obviously comes back on this um, these people in their house and finds them dead. And I think he feels kind of bad about it at that point. But uh, the hounds come a long way since then. But anyway, the hound kind of you know. He's their guest, but uh, he don't care and takes what he wants to take. Um, I find it interesting that uh, when Tyrion's in his cell, he um, when he's talking to Pod, he even considers uh, if Tywin could be behind Joffrey's murder. So I never really thought much about this until we've been going through this rewatch and the conversations that Tywin has with Olenna. And the show never confirms it, but... I, th- I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of buying a little bit the possibility that Tywin, he either knew the plan or he knew that there might be a plan. He didn't do anything to stop it. Wouldn't surprise because me. Because after man. Joffrey's little outburst in that council, in that small council meeting, uh, and Joff- and Tywin basically sent him off to bed. <laughs> 
I'm thinking Taiwan may have had had enough of Joffrey. So maybe, who knows, maybe uh, Taiwan had a part to play in uh, the plot to kill Joffrey. Uh, okay, I have a question. Who offered the knighthood to Pod? I don't think we ever really find that out. I guess, you know, we could figure that it was, you know, some henchman of Cersei or of Tywin, or, you know, maybe they were both in on it to try and um, get Pod's testimony. But I'd forgotten that they offered him a knighthood. I can't remember if that happens in the books or not. Anyway, um, I, was, I was trying to think who who would have done that. I don't think we ever got full confirmation on that. And then my last note was that uh, how smart, how tactically smart John is. He immediately sees the difference, the tactical difference between the wildling attack on the village and Ali comes asking for their help. The difference between that and the mutineers that are uh, at Craster's Keep and uh, how it's different with uh, the fact that uh, they have intel about the Night's Watch, their, their patrols, their rotations, their numbers, all that sort of thing. Um, stupid old Alistair Thorne basically equates the two things. And when John says, we got to go get the mutineers, he says, we've just been over this, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, it shows you how smart and um, how much of a command uh, mindset that John has. But anyway, those Agreed. are all my notes. And uh, thanks a lot. And talk to you all next time. Bye. Great to hear from you again, Zach. We, we had a lot of the same thoughts, it turns out. That's pretty awesome. Looking forward to hearing from you again soon, brother. All right, that's our show, episode 75. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes, thanks for listening and for writing into Raven's Calls. We love hearing your guys' feedback. It's always awesome. Definitely. Next episode, we'll be covering Season 4, Episode 4, Oathkeeper. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. If you'd like to call, you can always call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you would like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Imp slap! Uh. <laughs> We're also on Twitter and Instagram at gompodcast. Give us a like on Facebook and an iTunes rating slash review. Our friend Travis is doing a Kickstarter to help put the finishing touches on his new meadery, where they'll also be selling their handmade leather goods. Check it out at weirdleatherandmead.com. That's W-Y-R-D, leatherandmead.com. Thanks a lot, guys, and I can't wait to try that mead for myself. Alright, that's our show. Thanks for listening. On your way where? Why do you care? Might book passage across the narrow sea. Fight as a sellsword. Second sons could be. Seems like a good fit for me. I'd like to see Bravos one day. Why Bravos? I have friends there. I doubt it.
he's not saying that he doesn't want to love her or that he doesn't love her. It's just like, why are you so, so why are you such a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love you, but you're a bitch. I'll kick you in the balls! Bitch! I love you! <laughs> yep. So, and then... <laughs> You're the worst shit in the seven kingdoms. <laughs> There's worse shits than me. <laughs> Something about the word stench is just really funny. It's wrong. <laughs> so uh, It's like the word moist. <laughs> <laughs> so he brings him a quill, some parchment, some duck sausage, not dick sausage like Ramsey eats. Which is true. Really sums up Pod. Yeah, he's a giver. I, I'm, I'm, I believe it. He pours a really good cup of wine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and he uh, gives the, Brienne the best massages after long days of battle. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, because he's a sex prodigy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you, your head was in the gutter there. I was just talking about how he ends up being with with Brienne. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. Maybe they. Up. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll I'm just kidding. It was an innuendo. And, you know, she's not horrible looking, but he, <laughs> that whore is freaky. She's fetching. Like, she gives me the <laughs> pretty little thing. Right. Like, I've seen Battlestar Galactica. I know what happens when strangers touch your baby. Yeah. I mean, she plays it so well. I mean, she's wretched looking. I mean, yeah. she's just rode hard and put away wet. <laughs> oh. I think they're cleaning out like a, a condom. condom. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. I let my nose. I'm gross. It's really not a place to raise children or live like a normal, like non whore life. You know, I, I thought it was really sad. Little Sam starts crying as Big Sam leaves. Wait, you mean Sam's dick or the baby? Because I think Sam's dick was a little bit sad there too that Gilly was going to be gone. <laughs> both <laughs> <laughs> this scene is where we kind of learned that from maester aemon that there's just a little over a hundred men and that includes everybody including maester aemon <laughs> yeah who is uh definitely not somebody to call on for a sword fight <laughs> no and he can't aim a bow very well 